Ladies and gentlemen, the following podcast contains coarse language, strong thematic themes, talk of history and context, terrible imitations of Hollywood figures, and an unbashed love of Hollywood's golden age. It also contains the ramblings of an unstable dork who has too much time on his hands. Listener discretion is advised. And now, on with the program. Okay, Zach, you're on the Yesteryear, Ballyhoo Review. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome, welcome, welcome to the Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Many great sights await inside the picture palace of the past, and we have plenty of ways to talk about the things inside. So hurry and get your seats. Tonight we saddle up the horses and ride out into the open frontier, the Old West, a world that has dazzled the imaginations of filmmakers since the dawn of filmmaking itself. Wide open prairies. Women wearing their fanciest buttons and bows, hitching posts and outhouses, campfires to sing songs to, uh, to songs by, cattle waiting to be imminently wrestled, and a world free from toll booths under the William J. Lepetamine throughway. Uh, and in the annals of film, two men synonymous with the genre brought to the screen a tale of revenge and rage set amidst the harsh heat a la Vista Vision in the landscape of Texas after the Civil War with 1956's The Searchers. So see the show. Stay behind for a discussion to delight the earbuds. From the thrilling pages of life, rides a man you must fear and respect. A man whose unconquerable will and boundless determination carved a lusty, rough, and boisterous slice of history called The Searchers. It's John Wayne as Ethan Edwards who had a rare kind of courage. The courage that simply keeps on and on, far beyond all reasonable endurance, never thinking of himself as martyred, never thinking of himself as brave. So we'll find him in the end, I promise you. We'll find him. Here is a story of a man, hard and relentless, tender and passionate, of people who dared to challenge a hostile land. Here is drama of great love and aching loneliness. I found him. I found Lucy. What you saw was a buck wearing Lucy's dress. I found Lucy back in the canyon. What was she? What do you want me to do, draw your picture? Spell it out? Don't ever ask me. As long as you live, don't ever ask me more. And if you don't hear my first holler, you better read my mind, because I don't aim to raise no two hollers on any subject at hand. Yes, sir. Boy, watch that knife. Go, Martin, please. Stand aside, Martin. No, you don't, Ethan. Ethan, no, you don't! Stand aside. Looks like you got yourself surrounded. Yeah, and I figure on getting myself unsurrounded. Let's go! 
Now that you've seen the show, we will get to the talk of the day. For their 12th collaboration together, director John Ford and movie star John Wayne gave the world The Searchers, a film that's legacy after its release was emboldened by the burgeoning new wave filmmakers, rewatched constantly by admirers of both director and star, and created a legend amidst the two that has been praised and then reconsidered in retrospect. The Searchers, undeniably a film on a pedestal, stands on the shaky ground of a world ever-changing, but nevertheless does compel a world to return to it time and time, time again. Why is that so? Will we have an answer to the more recent controversies? Absolutely fucking not. But we will try and process it as best we can here at the Ballyhoo, but we cannot do it alone. Along with us on this dusty trail is a return guest whose dedication to purchasing the house from the double indemnity film remains intact. And as does his admiration for Mr. Billy Wilder. Please welcome back Adam Jewell. I'm back. You're back. Thanks for thanks for having me. Um, <laughs> I will just an update on the house. Uh, we are still in talks, um, but that's all I can say. How many times did you shake that DVD copy in front of him, saying like, "It's all here. The evidence is all here." Yeah, I I don't have to do any bartering with you people. <laughs> It was more of an unspoken language. I didn't even have to show him. Like, oh, okay, I know what you're here for. <laughs> you know, we just we talked it out like adults. Yes, exactly. So what you're saying is, you and your lovely wife and child will be moving into the double indemnity home, um, and hopefully, no insurance agents come to the door. <laughs> Fingers, fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. You, you, we're speaking over Skype, and as you can, you can't see it on the show, but Adam Jewell just fing- crossed his fingers. So here's hoping. Um, but we're not here to talk about Billy Wilder, although that is that will be a future episode for you because not too long after this, uh, within like mere weeks, we will be doing the apartment um, because that was one of the things on your list. However. When we were done recording Double Indemnity, we got to talking because, you know, a little bit of catch up. It's been a while since we had talked. And um, uh, you uh, you and I talked about the searchers. I don't remember exactly what brought this up. I think it had a lot to do with the reckoning that films of a certain era have had within the last four years, but also just in general, the the discussions that need to happen over films such as The Searchers. And then finally it just came to like, let's just talk about The Searchers. Why not shoot ourselves in the foot this early on in the show's existence? Um, but I'm going to post post a disclaimer right here on the show right now. The Searchers is an American classic, and we are not trying to take your movie away from you. That being said, we are going to discuss it honestly, critically, and we are going to discuss reality. There, that, that being said, we didn't take your movie away. It's still available on Blu-ray from Warner Brothers and available on HBO Max. Okay, now, Adam, I want to get to talking to you now. Because, first of all, it has been a hot minute since we've talked on the Double Indemnity episode. Uh, how are you uh, keeping up with the changing world uh, amidst a, a coronavirus and uh, now? Now, uh, new leadership. <laughs> um, I guess in terms of new leadership, I think it's great. Yep. <laughs> um, corona, you know, just hold up in my in my home with my wife and son. Mm-hmm. See, we track how long we've been working, wor- how long I've been working from home as well as slash in quarantine because... My son was born at the end of March, two weeks after we 
that my job gave me the work from home orders. So, mm-hmm. and he turns 10 months old tomorrow. No, not tomorrow. Next week or Saturday. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it's been a minute. <laughs> and California California can't really seem to get out of its own way mm-hmm. um, it's like hey wear a mask but also do you and stay home but do your support your local businesses but wear a mask while coming outside to support your local businesses but stay home mm-hmm. so, yeah there's, hey, a, uh, there's a great TikTok on there's a great TikTok about it uh, that kind of poignantly educates everyone on how it's going in California. But I'm not here to talk about <laughs> Corona and COVID. Yeah. I am here to talk about some searchers. Yes, exactly. Some searchers. That's a, that was the working title before John Ford said, I don't fucking like it. <laughs> Throw it the fuck out. Um, yeah. Um, actually in regards to that real quick, I mean, I, I work a day job that is technically an essential services as I work in grocery. And as a result, I go out. Um, And a film that we will talk about that relates to this film is a film that I was able to see in theaters, which are open here in Colorado under very strict um, guidelines um, to the point of contract tracing, um, which I... I'm glad they did it this time because they should have done it the first time before they had to shut it down again. This is how you not lose money as you take every fucking precaution if you're going to do such a thing. Um, but I'm in a similar situation that when I'm not working, I'm in this basement editing podcasts and apparently now lecturing on Jack Benny, That's which is the fucking weirdest thing <laughs> in the world. Is it, you, we've known each other for a, for a more than a hot minute, and you've known my love of that comedian. And you did, did you ever think that I was going to be doing this? Sh- <laughs> like this is well, it takes a world. <laughs> yeah, but nevertheless, though, um, at this point, we'll have already I will already have done that convention and uh, t- probably tanked the internet completely. They'll just say the internet's done. We're not doing this anymore. We're done with it. Zach killed it. Um, but I mean, if you killed the internet, would it be that bad? That no, internet- no. And Adam, that makes me a hero. <laughs> I mean, it just might. Yeah, I know. Maybe, maybe this is my moment to shine. Uh, but again, we are here to talk about the searchers and Western heroics, heroics, heroics. Um, yeah. So, uh, Adam, I already asked you about your Golden Age Hollywood experience, and obviously you are uh, the the contrarian when it comes to this uh, the group of guests that I have assembled thus far. You are the the lone gunman, if you will, when it comes to like these movies aren't always that great. Um, but The Searchers is a film you own. It's a film that you have clearly watched before. What is your first experience with The Searchers, and had it changed from the first viewing to today which i think the answer is pretty obvious but (laughs) for posterity's sake well as the contrarian and to fit in with our western motif i wear the black hat for this for the golden age of hollywood um (laughs) i feel like some of your other guests i.e matt willicks uh is more of the white hat of the (laughs) 
calling you out, Pilgrim. Um, I want you two to have a duel in the sun. <laughs> you do have a mustache right now. You could be a Western villain. That's true. I spit like a cowboy, too, you know, where you kind of do that. Yeah. So when I spit, I do that. Yeah. Um, but anyway, my first experience with the searchers and John Wayne, um, I am a child of divorce. Uh, okay. So during the summers of my childhood, when I was, oh, about like age four to about 12, I'd spend my summers with my brother at my dad's. And my dad lives in southwest Kansas. So any of you uh, familiar with Kansas or have ever studied a map, Kansas is a rectangle. My dad lives in the exact lower left corner of said rectangle okay. so right there like right on the border i could walk to oklahoma and then walk to texas oh okay so it's so it's not the four corner thing but it's more like a three corner kind of scenario it's uh and it's very flat um <laughs> so and Much- during this time in the beginning he had he was living on a farmhouse that was like a I think it was a three bedroom farmhouse just out in the middle of nowhere. Like, and this is before, you know, this is before all the internets and the interwebs and all the face spaces. And whoa, 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 whoa. So, slow, slow down, slow down. I can't keep up with your high tech mumbo jumbo. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so it was during the time where we had only three channels uh, on our television for if it was a clear night, because that's when the antenna would get it from the larger city. Yeah. Um, but my dad had a plethora of VHSs of a 80s movies, because apparently he stopped watching movies after about 1993 or four. Hmm. Uh, and so he had a bunch of VHSs of 80s movies and westerns john wayne Mm -hmm. and so i grew up watching top gun major league golden child beverly hills cop beverly hills cop 2 um what else ferris bueller's day off i can Mm -hmm. recite i could probably recite top gun and ferris bueller's to you right here and right now uh but i won't uh but if if i do that patreon that we've always talked about top gun definitely that's what they call that's what they call a tease in the business. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um and so also John Wayne movies and also The Searchers mm-hmm. was one of them and I just remember watching them cuz you know we had nothing else to do. Uh so we would go outside <laughs> for a little bit but other yeah. than that, you know, playing on a flat surface in the com- country with just your brother, eh, it gets old. And, well, that and the fact that you want to avoid the dust storms, you know, everything. The Dust Bowl era is what you technically lived at. The Dust Bowl 2. <laughs> I mean, I can, I have a photo. It, I have a photo of the house. I'll send it to you and you'll be like, oh, okay. <laughs> um, so anyway, and so that's what, that was my first introduction. But then, so fast forward like 15, 20 years, it's 2006. A young Joe Piscopo had moved on from Saturday Night Live. Uh, and, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, 
I was at work one day, and I was working in college at a hotel at a local hotel in Iowa. Mm-hmm. And I was talking to one of my coworkers who was also a cinephile, mm-hmm. and he told me about this relatively new site called Netflix. And Wait. he said, and he said, yeah, it's really great. You just order the, you set up your queue. And they mail it to you, and you keep it as long as you want. And I was like, mind blown. And so first thing I did, I went on, and I was like, whoa, this is really cool. I sign up, and then I build out my queue. And one of the movies, it wasn't the first movie, because I was more of getting the new releases, because I I hadn't been to the movies in like a year or so. So I was like, ah, new releases, new releases. And then eventually I was like, oh, yeah, The Searchers. I forgot about that because back then Netflix was like, oh, well, you liked this. Would you like this? And then, you know, you're looking by genre. I'm like, what Westerns do they have? You know, you just kind of go down this rabbit hole of thinking of like a snowball of thought. Yeah. Whereas like, you remember that one thing is like, oh, yeah. And then it led to that. And then da, 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 and then you're just off to the races. So basically it was like that. And I was like, oh, The Searchers. Boom. Done. And then. I get the searchers, and this is before HD as well, and Blu-ray. So this would have been like the earliest DVD release, you would say, probably? Or So I believe it was still on. I don't know if it was widescreen yet. No, it probably was, just because of the way Ford shot it. It had to be on widescreen. That more than likely, yeah. But yeah, it, anyway, you got the DVD in. Yeah, and I got it, and I was like, oh yeah, I remember this. And that's how I came to the searchers, and I was like... This movie's good. Um, and then, as, because then I bought it on Blu ray when Blu rays were first out or when they were kind of perfecting the science. And then, as I've watched it, I don't watch it a lot. I occasionally break it out. And every time I watch it, it just it changes my idea of why it's good. Like, it's still a good movie, but it, changes my reasons as to why and what makes it a good movie. That is very interesting to hear because um, my experience with The Searchers is also Netflix related, early Netflix related. Um, But I am younger than you. Um, Not, not too much. I don't believe I can't remember our age gap. I'm struggling to recall it at the moment. Um, uh, But when I was in sixth grade, we were doing a some kind of project regarding the Old West and the frontier. And around that time, my parents took me to New Mexico for a vacation. And she took, it took they took me and my sister. We went to a lot of different places in there. I mainly remember the hotel, and I mainly remember a dinner that happened where we were at a restaurant. We were sitting at dinner. This was in 2003 guys or in two th- late 2002, early 2003, somewhere around that time. And across from our table was, um, Richie Cunningham himself, Ron Howard sitting with his wife, Cheryl. And my dad recognized him and suggested that I go over and talk to him. And my mom said, no, don't interrupt him during his dinner. Uh, and so I sat there patiently and quietly and I didn't say anything. 
And uh, to this day, my mom still feels frustrated that she told me to sit down because she's right to feel that way because I could have met Richie Cunningham, Adam. This would have been the greatest thing ever. Um, you know, I, and I also... <laughs> Ron Howard's one of the nicest people in the industry. Yeah, I'm sure he wouldn't have minded if I interrupted his quaint dinner in New Mexico uh, to uh, to say like, hey, I really like because at this time I liked Andy Griffith and I was like, I really like you on Andy Griffith. And then he would have said, oh, aren't you a little young to be watching that <laughs> or something of that nature? Be like, this is before your time, like way before. Like, what the fuck are you doing here, kid? Get out of here. <laughs> I thought you were going to. I thought you were going to make an even obscure <laughs> reference other than that something that like wasn't be like, you know what? I really loved Backdraft. Oh, oh, I hadn't gotten to Backdraft yet. I think my his directing experience for me had been The Grinch um, and uh, Apollo 13. That was it at that time. Um, oh, I, 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 take, I take that back. Parenthood. But I don't think I remembered it. I didn't know it was him that did Parenthood until years later. Um, but um, the movie he was making or would have been in New Mexico at that time around for was The Missing, which is very much a Searchers-esque movie um, with Tommy Lee Jones and Kate Blanchett um, dealing with a similar plot. And so at a certain point between sixth grade and frontier talk and Western talk and not getting to meet Ron Howard, and, um, uh, but around that time we got the Netflix thing. I had gotten duck soup off of there. I had gotten like several different films. Um, and one of the ones that I had never seen was the searchers. And I had heard in a magazine, which I think it would have been EW that the missing is his take on the searchers. So I'm like, okay, I want to watch this. And so I popped it in, I watched it. And I must admit for an 11 year old kid, I was incredibly bored. Um, I did not get the appeal. I did not get the uh, attraction to the Western, and I certainly didn't understand why John Wayne was as popular as he was. Um, as I got older and went to film school, and even in high school when I started watching things like Stagecoach or The Quiet Man and whatnot, that started growing on me a little bit more. But anytime I went back to The Searchers, I was never as impressed by it, even after getting the two-disc DVD of it watching Martin Scorsese praise it to the stars and trying to watch it from his perspective, I still was left um, a little bit um, uh, disconnected from the movie. Now, cut to about three years ago, I popped it on while I was still in my drinking days, and I, 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 I was marveling at the visual acumen, but then I started really understanding. Not, I finally got into the story, and then I was like, oh, this dialogue. Oh, these motivations. Like, I started having, like, this ultimate, like, oh, my God, this movie, while at the same time admiring it and marveling it. And to this day, even as I rewatched it for this episode, my take on The Searchers is so complicated in the respect that it is immensely watchable. There is nothing that detracts you from getting engaged in the story except for the fact of the characters themselves and the motif that they're dealing with. Because when it comes to Westerns of this era, uh, even prior to the Western, the spaghetti Westerns that come out in the 60s and 70s, you are dealing a lot with the Confederacy and the Lost Cause as a theme that is 
stuck in there, whether it permeates the entire movie or is just a set piece, it's there. And for me, it's very hard to take the side of a gray coat. Now, when I think about Ford, my my opinion about him has evolved beyond the searchers because of his work outside of Westerns. I really like the Grapes of Wrath. Um, I have learned to reappreciate over the last year how green was my valley. Um, and I like The Quiet Man, as I said, which is a very, you know, it's it's a very smallish film, a smaller film. I love The Informer. Um, and I like watching his World War II films, uh, the films that he shot for the War Department at the time, and learning from Paul Greengrass on Five Came Back, or at least him relaying information he read, too, from Mark Harris's book, which is a great book that you should read about Ford's wartime experience. So I gained a lot more empathy um, or at least understanding of how a man like that operated at the time without excusing or condoning any of his political beliefs or his behavior um, because John Ford was, to say the very least, an asshole, um, uh, at least when it comes to his job. Um, now, my opinion on John Wayne, on the other hand, has very has changed very little over time, very little. Um, I don't like him as an actor. I think he's a movie star, as has been alluded to by several guests in After Show Chatter. Um, and uh, I appreciate how an image like that can be created, like in terms of the grand scheme of Golden Age Hollywood and its factory mentality, like how do you manufacture a star? John Wayne is kind of the example of take somebody who's never acted in his life and make him turn him into a star. Like anybody can be a movie star. The mentality that brings you out west to follow your dreams. Um, and John Wayne kind of personifies that in a lot of ways from the formation of his star, his breakout in Stagecoach, his World War II films. He becomes an American icon. Now that icon iconography and that bravado that he purported on screen has since gone under a rightful ringer of evaluating his legacy in film while I would argue not diminishing the value of going back to his movies if you so choose um it's not my first choice when I go it's not the thing I'm gonna pop on late at night when I'm like trying to decompress I'm like you know what I want to watch again um, uh, she wore a yellow ribbon. Why, why the hell not? That that sounds like a fun ass time. No, it's not what I go to. But there are films of his I like. I love Rio Bravo a lot, and a lot of that has to do with my love for Howard Hawks. Um, but uh, going back to the searchers for this conversation, it's not only very relevant to modern history and context, but also this is a film that still gets lauded today by the new wave. You could talk to Spielberg, you could talk to Scorsese, you could talk to Bogdanovich. They will all put Ford on a pedestal from the technical acumen alone. And a lot of them love The Searchers. Scorsese loves this movie. And uh, for in the in, in, against my better judgment to go against Cinema God, uh, I kind of don't see Scorsese's point of view on this. I understand from the from the development of the characters he he would later go on to create in his own films, how that makes sense. But like enjoying the film, the searchers itself is a whole other, other different debate for me on that. Um, but 
in order to talk about the searchers and why it's hard for me to muster up the words without sounding like I'm going in a roundabout wagon train circle. Um, we kind of have to talk a little bit about John Ford and John Wayne prior to this film uh, being made. Um, John Ford is a legend in filmmaking. This is undeniable. He started off in silent films working with Harry Carey Sr. would make 26 films with him in the silent era especially at Universal. Universal was a studio at the time that would, amongst other things, knock out cheap, low-budget films such as Westerns. Westerns were very cheap to make, especially in California where the land was still relatively undeveloped, particularly in the Hollywood Hills, and you could make a Western for cheap, get it out there into market, and we, people would be like, I had the adventure of a lifetime. I saw cowboys. I saw Native Americans. Well, they, they wouldn't say Native Americans at this time. I saw I saw horses. I saw hills. And, and it was, oh, it's great. Here's my nickel. I'll, I'll come again tomorrow with another nickel. Um, and that's, you know, that popularity of that genre was huge in early cinema. Huge in early cinema. Um, but he would um, run through the gamut in silent films. Fun fact. He is an uncredited Klansman in The Birth of a Nation. Yep. Um, now, he's not the only big-time director in The Birth of a Nation. Raoul Walsh, um, a very, very good director um, of the studio era that is under-discussed. He's not forgotten, but he's under-discussed. Um, uh, played Abraham Lincoln in Birth of a Nation. So there's a lot of um, there's a lot of history with a movie that is unwatchable trash. But <laughs> um, the and also as has been discussed on other episodes, there are other films that were the first feature film. They just didn't come from America. Um, so if you want to get into the technical realm of things, uh, feature length cinema actually started in New Zealand with an adaptation of the story of the Kelly Gang. So thank you, Mark Cousins, for setting the record straight. Um, now he, uh, but his directing career begins after working through the different departments as any film school student will have to do. You work through the gamut. You learn every single aspect of production, or at least the ones that you, uh, clamor onto. Like we, you and I both worked as grips at one time or another, or, you know, carried a bucket or two to, to a, to a sound a bucket or two to a lighting guy where he's just like, hand me a, hand me a clamp. Um, or we've had to hold the boom pole, etc. Ford had to do the 19-teens equivalent of that, um, except at that point it was nobody knows this is an art form. This is literally just a scheme to get people to give us a nickel. <laughs> like If you really think about cinema and where it starts, it, it doesn't start off as an art form. It doesn't become an art form until much later on. Before that, it's just like, hey, what if we stiff some money out of people by making them believe that cowboys exist again or a train is going to come at them in the station? Like, It's not their prime motivation, but it, it's, a, it's a, uh, a, a, a silly version of that. Um, but he works through the silent era. He then gets into talkies. He runs the gamut and works his way up not only to becoming one of the top directors at studios like Fox, this guy, over the course of his entire career, won six Oscars. Several different critics' awards. People love his movies. Orson Welles loves this man's movies. Um, 
as we discussed, the new wave loves his movies. Um, and one of the seminal Westerns that he made uh, was Stagecoach, 1939, which is also the film that it's not the first time he works with Wayne, but this is the first time we get the Wayne Ford persona, the one that we notice in the searchers, like the all of that the 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 quintessential quintessential Western hero in the form of the Ringo Kid in Stagecoach, yeah. um, which I I mean I I mean this is a quick aside, Adam. Are you a fan of Stagecoach, or is that a little bit more like meh for you? I am not. Okay. okay. All, All right. right. Interesting. Interesting. I'm, not, I'm very, when it comes to the golden age of Hollywood, I'm very particular mm-hmm. in what I like and what I don't like. Okay. Yeah, that's fair. We You've brought that up before. And Stagecoach is just not one of them. I remember I hadn't watched, I didn't watch Stagecoach until, I want to say near the end of college. Okay. So it was like, this is a dumb black and white shitty western <laughs> it's just nothing but oh good guys bad guys but and then you see and it, I think stagecoach has not aged well either mm-hmm. uh, I think I think the searchers might have aged a little bit better mm-hmm. for reasons I cannot say maybe because that it has People like a Scorsese and a Bogdanovich and a Spielberg all behind all behind it saying like, oh, this is like one of the preeminent Westerns. Okay, fine. Yeah. Um, but like with Stagecoach, yeah, no. I'm just like, okay, cool. You're just, it's once again just perpetuating this myth of white people settling the West and their idea of this manifest destiny to be like, well, the West is ours, and this is how we conquered it, boys and girls. <laughs> the end. That's, that's American history. That's the one that they tried to limit it to before Dum Dum went bye-bye, because um, that, that report came out. <laughs> yeah. I've only seen Stagecoach, I think, once in my life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because they, okay, so here is the stagecoach here. Stagecoach, here is the actual logline from our friends at IMDb. Mm-hmm. A group of people traveling on a stagecoach find their journey complicated by the threat of Geronimo and learn something about each other in the process. Yeah, which, again, it falls into the same trappings as every Western does of this era because of outdated portrayals, racist portrayals, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but stagecoach to me the reason why i stomach it better than the mo- most of the other ones is because the primary focus is them inside that stagecoach it takes place primarily inside trapped with them and those characters doesn't excuse any of the outdated racist imagery however i appreciate that film's approach to a western as opposed to films that the natural motif with a Western is go big, expand it out, you know, show the vast, show the vastness of the West. Um, Well, it's not just show the vastness. And I think the searchers also talks about this. It shows the vastness, but also it's just showing it's 
being the vastness of the of the West being tamed mm-hmm. by white men. <laughs> yeah, manifest destiny, Adam. Isn't that a lovely phrase that I don't want to hear ever again? <laughs> Um, but you're, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, now regardless though, uh, to get back into the history of these two braggarts of cinema, um, the, the Duke as he was known, but his real name is Marion. Let's just call him Marion. Cause why the hell not? Uh, born in 1907, different time, different place in the world. Um, but, um, Wayne, Wayne didn't uh, initially start off as uh, a an actor. He um, he was uh, a football player uh, in high school and then college, um, and he was working toward pre law at USC. Um, he played under Howard Jones uh, as coach, uh, and he broke a collarbone, uh, which uh, kicked him out of his athletic career for good. So he lost this scholarship and no funds. He left USC. Um, but uh, he did as a favor to Coach Jones. Uh, he was uh, hired by Ford and Tom Mix, uh, who was a silent Western film star of the era, to be a prop boy and extra. Uh, he would end up being an extra and stuntman and prop guy for films such as Four Sons, Strong Boy, and The Black Watch. Uh, and... Uh, this is where his his acting career really starts work, getting kicked off at the Fox Film Corporation, um, which used to be um, a, a studio that was then turned into 20th Century Fox and is now back to being called 20th Century Studios because reasons and monopolies and whatever. Um, but uh, his uh, he was given the first on-screen credit he had was Duke Morrison, so it was not that was not it wasn't even John Wayne just yet. Um, for um, uh, but then Raoul Walsh casted him in the movie The Big Trail in 1930, and Walsh suggested that his name be Anthony Wayne after Anthony, a Revolutionary War general, Mad Anthony Wayne. Um, but Fox Studio chief Winfred Sheehan, uh, Winifred Sheehan, uh, rejected it, said it sounded too Italian. And then while Walsh suggested John Wayne, uh, Sheehan agreed, and that's how John Wayne was born. Uh, and Wayne was not even present for his name change. He's just literally like sitting in a, in a house, in a house going like, uh, getting a phone call going like, wait, my name is what now? <laughs> like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> like, sure. Money, I guess, because his pay was raised to $105 a week after this discussion. Uh, there you go. Yeah. So he again goes and works in Westerns and whatnot, but he kind of gets relegated more to B Westerns and, um, B pictures. He doesn't like, and then if he goes into an A picture, he's playing small roles. Uh, but then stagecoach happens. Yeah. And I think, and stagecoach is quote unquote, the movie that really a starts his career. Mm-hmm. B starts the whole Western genre. Like there had been Westerns prior to that, but I think, Stagecoach is the one that really like turns it up to 11 in terms of uh, in terms of just production of Westerns. Yeah. Well, it's a very ambitious film. It's a very ambitious Western. It's a Western with legitimacy. Um, Yeah. And so 
and back to your point earlier about how he was essentially became a movie star, just built as one a hundred percent. Yeah. A hundred percent. You look at him, he's got piercing blue eyes. He's, you know, six, three, he's got the big broad shoulders, the square jaw. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and just stands and it's just like, okay, yep. Bingo. Yep. Put him in, put him, put him in. Hey, then that's how they put me into pictures, Adam. That's how I got in. Um, and then we and, can and, talk about his act. We can talk about his acting ability a little bit later. Yeah. Because there, this is something I do want to get this, um, this out for the bat right now. I'm not using this episode as an excuse to bash John Wayne's legacy into the ground per se. Um, but my opinion of John Wayne will permeate in this discussion because, as I said before, I think he's a movie star. I don't think he's an actor. And what's more, I'm not a huge fan of him. Um, oh, you're a thousand percent correct. Yeah. And so, like, but I but I get that I have friends who like John Wayne in spite of all the bullshit. Um, I have a question. Surrounds him. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> Does your dad like John Wayne? I think my dad's indifferent to John Wayne. Um, I, I I think he's just like I. I think he's kind of like whatever. Like I, I, you know what? You know what? You've met my dad before. You know what my dad watches nowadays, Adam? He watches crime dramas on CBS. I don't think he he. You know what he does like? Blue Bloods. He really likes Blue Bloods. <laughs> which is which is yeah. I, I get it. It's it's dad the TV show. Just wait. When you become fifty, you'll like it. <laughs> I get it. Well, that's that's why I'm asking because like every person that I know, it seems as if their dad loves John mm-hmm. Wayne, or it, or at the very least likes a small amount of his movies because they came out when you know they were a kid and right gave him like oh John Wayne. Uh. So I was just curious to be like, does your dad like John Wayne? No, but I think we, I think you need to pull your you need to pull the audience right, and put it out there on <laughs> the interwebs before you break it and eventually kill it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> how many of your dads like John Wayne? Okay, or so this... I should say, like John Wayne movie. Okay, th- that's a that because that's a fair distinction because I don't think all dads agree with John Wayne on everything. Um, but yes, this is a poll for yesteryear Ballyhoo review listeners. Did your dad introduce you to John Wayne, and if so, is he a fan of the Duke? Um, uh, just tell us on the Twitter that account. On your uh, bring, you should bring that up on your other podcasts to your real nerds. Oh yeah, I should ask them that. I think Ryan's answer would be pretty succinctly like no because he said uh, he said before that his dad didn't introduce him to um Golden Age Hollywood films. That came on his own and um but yeah, Brad, James, um and Corinne, I'd have to ask them. Um but what I will say is is that my my familial connection to Wayne is actually from my great uncle, technically, because my great uncle was the first one to expose me to Wayne in any form or fashion. He's also the same one who introduced me to Douglas Adams, um, uh, the Lone Ranger, so several other older properties too, because he knew of my interest in old timey things. So you know, there's a, a, a he comes from that same era of people who would have you know, grown up loving John Wayne and worshiping at the altar of John Wayne. And I know he's still alive. He still watches John Wayne movies from what I can tell. Um, 
you know, and if Uncle Chuck is listening to this, I'm sorry that I'm about to bash your hero, but I love you to death and I hope you're doing all doing all right. Um, Because he did have surgery not too long ago. So I am hoping he's doing well. But John Wayne, on the other hand, um, is dead. And we could talk about him right now because I have no problem digging up old corpses. Um, (laughs) uh, But anyway, so, yes, you're right. Stagecoach is a definitive Western. This the same year that it comes out, Union Pacific also comes out, which is a Cecil B. DeMille Western. um, And. Both of them are the films that basically create the epic Western. Um, Up until then, Westerns were cheapies, um, very, very low budget, not very um, well tended to. But Union Pacific and Stagecoach very much changed the picture on that. In fact, the, uh, the fact that Stagecoach and Union Pacific are both nominated for Oscars in various different categories is a testament to the fact that 1939 was a year for a resurgence of things like a Western um, as well as horror. Um, but after Stagecoach, uh, the uh, uh, his career boons, and it really kicks off not only just after Stagecoach, but also at the breakout of World War II. Um, and he, he got a deferment called 3A, which is a family deferment, um, he was 34 at the time of Pearl Harbor, and he had um, he had v- many children at the time. Um, but uh, Wayne had said he reportedly wrote to John Ford saying he wanted to enlist on one occasion, inquiring whether he could get into Ford's military unit. Um, but Ford's military unit was not an active service member unit. It was a film unit. Um, It was a film unit dedicated to documenting the war in very dangerous circumstances. And while, while Wayne would qualify because he had worked as a crewman for Ford, um, Mm -hmm. it is very interesting thinking of the symbol of American heroism being, you know, just wanting to try to find the safer route out. Um, and But Republic Studios, which is the uh, Z-grade studio, one of the Z-grade studios of the era, the um, uh, the Poverty Row Studios, if you will, which would put out, amongst other things, cheapy westerns, cheapy serials, cheapy horror movies, et cetera, the like. And they were resistant to lose him since he was their only A-list actor under contract. Um, Herbert J. Yates, the president of Republic, threatened John Wayne with a lawsuit if he walked away from his contract. And so Mm. Republic Pictures intervened in the selective service process and requested Wayne get a deferment. So it's a combination of the 3A family deferment and Republic Pictures interfering with things. There are interviews with John Wayne where he talks about John Ford's service and talks about his own experience during the war and he does he ca- he conveniently does not mention this but he discusses it as, as that I was a family man and I thought I could do more helping people w- you know with the war bond effort you know get out there and Each sell year. those bonds yeah yeah it's it's I, I think he has a hard time reconciling the fact that he didn't just tell Republic Pictures to go screw themselves because a lot of people it is true that a lot of people who left their contracts to go to war, put themselves at risk of never working again. Jimmy Stewart did this. Um, Every director mentioned in Mark Harris's book, Five Came Back, risked never working in Hollywood again, even though they were being commissioned by the military through their studios one way or another to be 
part of these filmmaking units. Ford's unit was part of through Fox. Frank Capra was commissioned outside of Columbia to work with the War Department. He risked never working for Columbia again. In fact, he really never truly went back to Columbia because after that he tries to form Liberty Films. Uh, Houston was going to always have a ticket back in because Jack Warner was very, very supportive of the war effort from before even Pearl Harbor because he knew that Nazis were a bad thing. Uh, and then George Stevens definitely risked never working again because he basically left uh, RKO. Uh, and uh, and then later um, uh, MGM to join the war. And Louis B. Mayer was not very minded toward the, toward the war. Um, and so... Ford and Wayne have very different trajectories of this, but after the while the war is going on, Wayne becomes a huge wartime hero movie star. There is a slew of wartime era films that establish him as the ultimate gung ho soldier, the guy that you want on your side in a fight. From movies like Sands of Iwo Jima to The Fighting Seabees, this is a guy who basically created our impression, more or less, of the gung-ho World War II hero. Now, not the definitive image of it, because there's several different images of this, as we've talked about with Casablanca, um, uh, where you actually texted a very uh, a very true fact, is that technically Rick Blaine is a, one of the founding members of Antifa. <laughs> I mean, um, it's true. Yeah, it is, when you think about it. He had to get there, but he got there. Um, and, uh, and, but, so he has... He has a slew of these World War II era films that really cement that legacy. Um, and Ford, meanwhile, goes off to war, makes films such as The Battle of Midway. He ends up filming with George Stevens on the beaches at Normandy during D-Day. When he was at D after D-Day, he was so distraught that according to the Five Came Back documentary and Five Came Back the book, he went on a three-day drinking bender and then was told promptly that his military service was over because he was not coping with the traumas of war. Um, now, there's a part of me that has the empathy of Ford during the war and after the war because he enters the war with a very gung-ho attitude because he has the opinion of serving military, doing military service um, for family and country and stuff like that. All of his family ancestors were in the war, in wars at certain points. Um and but when he gets out of World War Two, he is a very different man. He's a very changed man, still an asshole, but a very changed person. And his it seems that his temper gets even worse because a lot of it would probably be due to the fact of PTSD and a combination of that and his rampant alcoholism that never really let up in his life ever, which is sad. Um, and he when he gets back, actually, they made a movie together he and uh duke made a movie together called uh they were expendable which also had um robert montgomery in it who served in the war and there's apparently a scene where john wayne is saluting uh like an officer and he had him do retake it and retake it and retake it multiple times before he finally said cut and he said damn it can't you salute like an officer and he looked like he was about to like kill wayne and then he just started breaking down crying in front of him and interviews with Wayne um, regarding that, he could tell that Ford had changed significantly with his wartime experience. So 
Ford comes out of this war um arguably a lot more uh embittered is is uh, is a word for it I guess also there seems to be disillusionment but the trouble with tr- tagging that in his legacy as a filmmaker is that if you watch any interview with John Ford he doesn't consider himself an artist really he doesn't really actively outwardly say I am a filmmaker artist making films for a reason. Whereas like a Hitchcock is going to openly say like, well, there's an uh, art and a technique to this. Or Billy Wilder is going to say there's a way to make movies. Ford's just like, did you shoot the film? Like what? Like Peter Bogdanovich asks, asks him, what do you, what, what do you shoot? Your, how, how do you, what goes into like, what does it take to make a John Ford movie? He's like a camera. Like it's just like, like the the most douchey answer one could give, but that's what who Ford was, um, and his film work post World War Two becomes bleak and bleak and even challenging to a lot of extents as time goes on, because after World War Two again we have there were exp- they were expendable My Darling Clementine which is, um you know a a little bit more of a um. Uh, darker western than you would give it credit for with a name like that um you have three godfathers um fort apache um she wore a yellow ribbon the quiet man rio grande um uh, he redid magambo with clark gable and ava gardner this time um and then this all leads up his his film prior to the searchers is mr roberts which is a really good movie um uh, based off of a novel uh, which has William Powell in his final role and James Cagney and an early Jack Lemmon as Ensign Pulver. Um, and he's very good in that movie too. If you've never seen that one, Adam, you might like this John Ford movie too. Um, it's a it's a comedy-ish kind of movie. Um, but then he goes into The Searchers. Um and he's already been making westerns in a post-war environment, so he's not. It's not as if like this is the big return to the western for Ford, but this is the uh, this is a production that ultimately st- like cements his legacy in the western because this is not only considered one of the most beautiful of the westerns he's made from to the, anything everything from Technicolor to camera to lighting to staging everything across the board um it's also a exemplary film when it comes to filming in live locations which monument valley was his tried and true home for filming these westerns which is in arizona utah uh that borderline area um and then this film also had additional scenes shot in utah uh, in griffith park los angeles and in alberta um and and colorado and colorado yeah he he liked going out in that open terrain, which had to clearly go back to his days working on the in the uni- old Universal lot, which had a huge, huge uh, piece of property that it's a city. Like you live in California, you know, Universal City is a city. Technically, it's a city. Um, and at one point, it had its own police and fire department. Um, I don't know if it's still every does. Yeah. every major studio did. Yeah, or still does. Well, I believe Warner's has their own fire department and I believe universe. I think every major studio still has like their own fire department, but yeah, it used to be a little, you know, same thing. Like century city is a real place. Yep. Yeah. Century city, which, um, would have been, um, 
the primary lot for a place like MGM, which is now Sony. So, I mean, Adam, I think we got this wrong. I think we need to become studio firemen. <laughs> <laughs> Just give up every ambition we've ever had to tell stories and go and be firemen for the studios. <laughs> Can you imagine the stories we'd have? <laughs> be boring as sin <laughs> um but um this is a film that was also produced not just within the scope of warner brothers but it's the first uh and only uh, uh first of only three films produced by cornelius vanderbilt whitney <laughs> which is the most uh 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 upper crusty rich person name ever 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 well maybe not ever um, but he was originally the uh, U.S. Secretary of Commerce. Uh, he was an Assistant Secretary of the Air Force from 47 to 49. Um, and, uh, and he invested in three films. It was this, The Missouri Traveler, and The Young Land uh, in 1959 with Wayne's son, Patrick Wayne, and a young Dennis Hopper. Yeah, so one for one for three isn't bad. Yeah, no, he got he got some big westerns out of it. Clearly, he had a um, a particular genre he enjoyed, um, and that's uh, totally cool. If you want to go out there and put your own money into those movies, like it's like an early version of a Megan Ellison, just going like, I'm going to take my family money and I'm just going to make films <laughs> that nobody's watching. Not to say I've watched them. I mean, I've gone to them for reviews. Um, yeah, there you uh, go. Yeah, Detroit. Her brother's doing a her brother's doing a little bit better with Skydance, but you know that's what happens when you have Tom Cruise and Mission Impossible. Oh yeah, well that's that you know they flipped a coin for him (laughs) who could get Tom Cruise into their into their studio run era. But um, the Searchers also is one of the first films um, ever to have a major intentionally made making of documentary for it. Commissioned by Wayne or by Ford, sorry, not Wayne, by, not by Wayne. No, I didn't fucking do it. Um, it Ford requested it, and it has a lot to do with the making of the movie, the prep of the uh, of the locations, construction of these props, and the overall scope of how Ford directs a movie. Um, and the the cast here is surprisingly stacked. Every time I go back to it, I'm always amazed at how stacked this cast is, considering because. When you think it's a John Wayne movie, it's not going to have that many other people in it stealing his spotlight. But we have John Wayne, obviously. We have Jeffrey Hunter, uh, who would then become the first captain of the USS Enterprise. Um, So that's cool. Uh, And uh, Vera Miles, uh, former discussion point for Psycho um, and The Wrong Man with Hitch. Uh, Ward Bond, Natalie Wood. Um, John Quaylen, Oliver Olive Carey, Henry Brandon, Ken Curtis, Harry Carey Jr., uh, Walter Coy. There is a lot and a lot. I'm talking a lot of people in this film where the the primary characters of the film are like few and far between. Like there's a lot of extras and uh, background extras and stunt work that we get into. But, you know, you have like a pretty minimal cast like your main characters are not the uh are are not in full bloom and henry brandon uh plays scar uh and he is a german actor um 
so he is doing unfortunately um brown face so um this isn't uncommon of westerns of the era um and it's actually was a tradition that was extended into um sp uh, italian spaghetti westerns of the era as well um the recently passed john vernon uh, who was, as we all know, that crusty old dean uh, who tried to tell John Belushi that he couldn't have a toga party. And John Belushi promptly said, fuck you, dean. And he had that toga party, Adam. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is the work of a bitter old dean. <laughs> and also, yep. a couple a couple fun facts you left out of the cast. Mm -hmm. A one Patrick Wayne, oh. John Wayne's son, as Lieutenant Greenhill, and yep, and as young Debbie, a Lana Wood. Yep, Lana Wood, who would end up becoming Natalie Clint. Sister. Yep, Natalie Wood's sister, and more, more uh, importantly, into the pop culture realm, Adam, she is Plenty O'Toole in Diamonds Are Forever. Mm, the James, that's right. The James Bond. That that movie. That that movie, Adam. That movie from that series. <laughs> also, to get back to your point of Henry Brandon playing Scar, what's interesting is that he uses Henry Brandon to play Scar, but everyone else is actually Native American. Yeah, that's the that's the strange, awkward part of it. Um, I want to go back really quickly to to the Vernon connection on this because Vernon did Brownface in uh, Topaz for Hitchcock, and um recently uh passed away uh legend john saxon also did brownface for a clint eastwood movie called joe kid uh which is uh not a bad movie but unfortunately and he's good in it but unfortunately it's there and you got to talk about it um and i uh you know i, I mean like it's I mean, there's nothing. There's nothing to say about it. It's fucking wrong. Um, there's no reason, especially if you've already got Native American actors filling the background, to not have somebody else take the um, uh, take the role who could actually give a performance. Um, and I mean, yeah, it's it. Yeah, I don't know. Like, I'm stumbling over my words because like, it's just like there's nothing else to really say on it. It's fucking wrong. <laughs> but um, regardless, it's there. Um, and I, and I, I mean, Henry Brandon's fine, I guess. I mean, he's doing his job. He's doing the job he's being asked to do. Um, and, uh, I don't know what his like exact thoughts on it were, but it's kind of uh, like, it's just when casting native Americans, it was like, oh, well, instead of going out and like trying to find native American actors, it was like, no, oh, well, there's no, there's no one around. You know, it's just kind of the same excuses then in terms of, you know, uh, Native American actors, black actors, mm -hmm. then to now. I mean, there's still a huge inclusion problem with both yeah. Native uh, American actors and black actors. But also now you see uh, in ways how now it's when there's ever an LGBTQ character mm -hmm. in the 90s. It was always over the top and just the weird best friend. And yeah, that, I, and then now uh, you have, yeah, you, you have that with 
the Native American people and John Ford, this is where I really digress. Uh, John Ford does a terrible, 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 terrible thing with most of his with most of his movies, where he just a yes he uses he uses Native American actors. Yep. Granted, but, Scar but, is not a yeah. Native American, but then he uses them for authenticity purposes because he's like, I want to be authentic. But you also have to look at how he's using these Native American actors. He's yep, using yep. them as props to just be lined up and killed. Because if you look at the searchers, in terms of the searchers, you see when Scar and his uh, men mm-hmm. destroy Aaron's home and kill everyone and make off with Lucy and Debbie. Mm. Uh, Ethan goes into, I guess, I don't know what, it's not really the house, but it's like the bunkhouse or something. And he's like, yeah. don't go in there. Yeah. And he kicks it. He kicks. Um, yeah. They've been brutally murdered and or raped. Yeah. Um, showing that, Hey, this is these white people. They're too pure. We can't show this. Yeah, well, he he does that, and he does that in an interesting way when we get into the plot. But I'll I'll let you keep going. Sorry, I just yeah. Then fast forward on the raid of one of the uh, Comanche, uh, I guess camps, if you want to say camps or settlements. Yeah, settlements. Uh, Yeah. You see, then they have no problem showing the. Uh, Comanche being a killed and then showing them with a saber mm-hmm. jammed into their chest yeah. um, and and things like that. Like they won't show white people being killed because it's too pure, but it's like, oh yeah, we have no problem showing Native Americans being killed because it's just always. Yeah. And there's yeah. yeah, and there's a justification that. Ford has for it because he establishes them early on as figures of fear, uh, as things of intimidation. And also, Adam, something I want to point out before we dive into the plot, um, he also utilizes them as figures of fun, um, which is not good in this case at all. It's never good when you're doing this at all because we'll talk about one particular character and the treatment of her by Jeffrey Hunter's character in the movie, yep. which I found on equal footing with all of the uh, the uh, portrayals of the Comanche tribe. Um, there are films of the era. Actually, I want to allude to, you haven't heard this episode yet, Adam, but um, I'll talk to you um, about it a little bit now. Um, the episode that will be coming out this week as of the recording is a film Man About Town with Jack Benny and Eddie Rochester Anderson, who I've talked with you about a little bit in terms of his role in cinema. And we talked about how it's a film that unfortunately has the problem of having negative stereotypes that then are, because the script is so mixed up because it's coming from two different sources of writers, um, is basically working with a progressive dynamic that Jack and Eddie Anderson had on radio that is transplanted to film, but then also goes back to stereotypes. So it's flip-flopping all over the place. So it's like an unfortunate, like we have to look at this in both of those camps here. It is unconscionable. 
Um, and there's an interview that Ford did in 1964 with Cosmopolitan, and he had this to say. There's some merit to the charge that the Indian hasn't been portrayed accurately or fairly in the Western, but again, this charge has been a broad generalization and often unfair. The Indian didn't welcome the white man, and he wasn't diplomatic. If he, wasn't, if, he, if he has been treated unfairly by whites in the films, that unfortunately was often the case in real life. There was much racial prejudice in the West. That's not an explanation. That's, that's sidetracking. <laughs> like that's, you like, can get the fuck out of my face with that bullshit. Yeah, exactly. I'm not. I, again, I believe. I'm, hey, Adam. Full disclosure. I'm not John Ford. <laughs> well, no, I know that. But yeah. it's just. But it's just saying. Oh well. I mean. Oh well, they they were treated poorly just because. Well, I guess they deserved it. And it's like, yeah, fuck you. Yeah, this is this is coming from a very uninformed man who clearly closed off his viewpoints past the 1920s. Um, and, it goes uh, well even yeah. further. I mean, it goes back to the idea of your words and iconography. They fucking matter. What you are saying is that is you're making a joke of an entire indigenous people. And then also using them as props to be killed mm-hmm. and feared. Yes. You give them no redeeming qualities. And you, and then that's how everyone's ideas are formed. Because it's like, oh, well, we see it in a movie. And it's like, oh, well, all right, well, that's okay. No, yeah, it, which is, which is, which is interesting that you bring that up because we're going to jump into the plot here first. But before that, I want to point out um, uh, that there's two things I want to bring up. One is, is that Roger Ebert wrote later on, like in a retro in a uh, after the fact analyzation of the film, he said, I think Ford was trying imperfectly, even nervously particular um, uh, to, to depict racism that justified genocide. Um, and, uh, that's a. That's I have a, that. I I have that exact same thing pulled up on my computer as well. Yeah, and it's um, it's a, it's an. I I wish I had seen this quote from Ebert years ago, um, and uh, which brings up the notion of wondering, like, you gotta wonder what's going on through Ford's mind with each of these films in particular. But The Searchers ends up being the one in front of us that has the most most problems on its sleeve and it's the one that is the ultimate classic and when we talk about we're not here to we're, we're not here to like ruin people's time with watching the movie if they enjoy watching this movie i i mean like that's at least my intention is not to like ruin your time with it but you have to understand that like as as how many years since 1956 has gone on that our understanding of the world has changed and our understanding of how these portrayals are negative and hurtful and painful to people. Um, they, they, it's required to talk about it in such context. It's not, it's it, that the bottom line is, is that if you don't talk about it this way, then it's very hard to convince people like, look, you need to watch this film, not just from a cinematic standpoint for the technique and the visuals and the, where do you shoot a landscape and et cetera. You need to understand this is a somewhat of a snapshot of where America is at, at that time in regards to how it views race relations and indigenous relations. 
because this is also in an era where TV has a lot of Western programming on it. A lot of Westerns are permeating television networks at this time because it's the only thing they had, Adam. They didn't have the Jack Benny program yet to set him straight per se. Like that took a while to build up. But um, the the permeated uh, content on television was buy up old Westerns and package them and put them on these television stations and kick people away from the theaters because television is a new thing. And so Westerns of this ilk, like The Searchers and Rio Bravo and other films where every all the stops are pulled out, they're an excuse to bring people back to the theaters for like, hey, you like it on TV. What if we gave it to you in VistaVision? And unfortunately, a film like The Searchers with all of the stops pulled out does have the issues that you need to talk about it before you sit down and watch the pretty landscapes that Ford films or the interesting dynamics with characters that are dealt with between the white people. And also to discuss the fact that there, this is a story that has transcended decades in different forms or fashions. <coughs> it has exceeded genres from the Western to modern action films over the last 10 to 15 years. I would say this movie did this movie did a couple things. One, it was the end of kind of the old western where it's like cowboys and Indians type things. Two, it introduces the anti-hero for the western. Yes. And three, it's the colonel that introduces the action hero. I wouldn't say it's the I wouldn't say that it is the quintessential movie that starts the action genre, but, but, it's, but the it's roots scene, of yeah. the action genre are there. I think you get a little bit more from it from say other westerns like a Leone um or a um Peckinpah. Yeah. You get more from people like that that also kind of know what they're doing in terms of just in understanding the world. Right. Exactly. Um, but it, you're right. It is the seed. It is like this like small seed that then blossoms into a much bigger thing. Cause the first thing I thought, you know, going back to this for the, I guess this would be the fourth, fourth or fifth time I've watched this movie now in my lifetime. Um, is as basically just like John Wayne is the prototype for Liam Neeson's, you know, second burgeoning career as an action star that started off with Taken. Uh, um, yeah, but J- Liam Neeson can actually act. Yeah, exactly. Whereas John Wayne is just, I'm just a personality. I'm just a face, Adam. That's all I fucking am. That's all I'll ever be. But God damn it, I'm apparently everybody's dad's favorite movie star. Um, and in this particular movie, he is a burgeoning like blossom of the anti-hero, which is something that the Westerns would then go on to really define with the post golden age, Hollywood Westerns that come out of Italy. Um, specifically a certain grumpy old man who has appeared on this show and may pop up again. Cause I don't know when to shut up my damn mouth unless I'm talking to a chair, in which case I'll let that chair talk. Cause it has a right to say some words. <laughs> yeah. He's in the documentary on John Ford too. Um, and he right off the bat says like, yeah, John Ford wasn't a, a, a filmmaker afraid of PC nonsense. I'm like, Oh Jesus. God damn it. Clint. God 
Damn. Can I? <laughs> can I? I would like to share a quote with you. Mm-hmm. Um, this is also this is from a critic of John Ford. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's from a director who has his own little sketching past. Mm-hmm. But forget about faceless Indians he killed like zombies. It really is people like that that kept this idea of Anglo-Saxon humanity compared to everybody else's humanity. And the idea that that's hogwash is, is a very new idea in relative terms. And he said, also, he led this with, to say the least, I hate him. Mm-hmm. And there's a young gentleman by the name of Quentin Tarantino. Um, ah, yeah. He has some very strong feelings on John Ford. Yeah, and um, the uh, the this is um, it's interesting to hear that quote, which I believe, if I had heard it before, would have come around the time of Django Unchained or Hateful Eight being released. Um, this is Django? This is Django? Okay, this this holds water because uh, Quentin also held his own form of controversy with that movie. With a director who I admire just as much, if not these days a little bit more than Quentin, um, by the name of Spike Lee, who we will talk about later on in this episode, because um, uh, some of his work has had direct commentary on um, on Ford. Um, but Quentin's films, for all the controversies that he has endured on this, and I know that he's had problematic issues strewn about, especially the last four years, um, mainly with misogyny. Yes, mainly with misogyny, which is, I, 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 it's hard to argue with it when it comes to the Hateful Eight, which is a movie I do like, um, but not for those reasons. Obviously, it's more of a. I find that movie to be a weird, challenging pill that I keep trying to un, or like a, a weird, challenging map that I keep trying to untangle, and maybe I think too much about it. Um, but Once Upon a Time in Hollywood had uh, controversies over the lack of dialogue in Margot Robbie's speech. So he's had his issues and all of his, his entire career because his first movies were criticized for being too violent. So he's had this all throughout. But I I would be, as as ambitious as this might be to say, I would say that Quentin Tarantino hasn't purported the same amount of insensitivity that Ford has. Um but I think obviously it's a conversation to have in regards to a filmmaker who does make arguably very popular modern westerns um, for a mass audience at the very least, because Django was very popular when it came out. Um, and onto the plot. Yes, exactly. No, it's no, it's fine. It, it actually it's a discussion we should have later on in the episode if need be. But we should get to the searchers. Um, because we've been searching for the plot this whole time. <laughs> if that wasn't a dumb joke, get ready. I've got plenty more coming, guys. Um, just to offset the fact that we're going to talk about some depressing shit. Um, but we open up. It's 1868 in Texas. The war is over. Daniel Day-Lewis, I mean, Abraham Lincoln, has been assassinated. Um, and uh, uh, Ethan Edwards is uh, has returned home. Uh, from his um, uh, time in service, or at least that's what it looks like given the fact that he's wearing a gray coat. But in fact, he's... We don't get a lot of, like, dead set information on him other than the fact that he's clearly committed some robberies or some crimes of sorts. He is, like, 
been a lost soldier after the the lost cause finally gets lost. Um, and uh, right off the bat, we're dealing with Ford imagery, which is undeniably some of the most influential visual filmmaking uh, setup shots and schemes ever. Um, what do we see, Adam, in the opening shot? A door opening into the wild vastness of the West. Um, the very iconic leaving, Ford. Yeah. Essentially leaving the safe space, essentially, mm. of our world and entering the vast, wild. Yep. Vast, wild West. The wild, wild West. The wiki, wild, the wiki, wild, wild West. James West. You remember the name. Um, <laughs> uh, and uh, you're right. We are seeing the. <laughs> Can we say that maybe the searchers did inspire Wild Wild West? I would say maybe. We talk in the movie or the TV show? The movie, I'd be. Okay, 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 yeah. Um, I mean, think Will, do you think Will Smith actually saw, watched the searchers and said, I want to make this? <laughs> and Barry. Do this. But give me a giant metal robotic spider well we do know that the spider was john peter's idea so we gotta that, that's that's that, that's already a confirmed fat by a fact by silent bob kevin smith <laughs> for confirming it but the rest of your idea may hold water because he went to barry sonnenfeld after men in black and he's like hey we're on top of the world right now let's remake the searchers and he's like well i don't think we can do that I, there's so many people I know who would be pissed off, but maybe I don't know if they like the movie, but I know there's two brothers that I'm aware of who like Westerns and they might find this offensive in a movie that's already offensive, Will. But what if, what if, hear me out, what if we resurrected an old TV show that nobody fucking remembers? <laughs> and we'll get Kevin that's Klein. John Peters, well, this is before John Peters, and then... Yeah, it's like, we'll get Kevin Klein, and then also we'll get Kev- Kenneth Branagh, because then it'll be legitimate. Yeah, and he's like, that Shakespeare guy? And he's like, oh, yeah, but no, trust me, he occasionally likes doing crap. <laughs> he occasionally likes to put on fake mustaches and doing certain <laughs> silly voices. Oh, oh, my God, that... Accents. I should say accents, not voice. Yeah, it's an accent. It's kind of also a voice because it doesn't specifically sound like him. He has to put on something different for it. Um, and then also, yes, of course. And then like, yeah, and let, let's put Salma Hayek in there um, because she's hot right now at the moment. And we'll put her in a cage to set up the fact that she's an object that you've got to save in this movie. Um, but anyway, that's neither here nor there. Although Wild West commentary in the uh, in the future, maybe I don't know. We'll have to we'll have to figure that one out. <laughs> now it, I'm going to break my rules, Adam. <laughs> Just uh, any rules that I set up at the beginning of this show are fucking done now. <laughs> um, but anyway, Ethan is returning to the homestead, and yes, again, we are int- we are being introduced to the wide landscape through that door shot. This is a shot that has been repeated by people like Steven Spielberg. Martin Scorsese has done this in his own in his own way. Um, I, I it's two brothers that I'm aware of have done this in different forms and variances of their movies. Um, and so you know his imagery permeates this particular picture. And also this is a bookend for him. Um, and it's one of the more iconic bookends, which I think is Peter Bogdanovich, who did the documentary on him uh, on Ford. Uh, uh, refers to something like Rear Window as Hitchcock's testament film. Arguably, if you're talking about Ford, 
the searchers is technically a testament movie where like everything about a john ford movie is at play in this movie um and so you get it's like if you want to sit somebody in front of it this is technically the entry point into the work of john ford um but there are different versions of ford in his career so this isn't even a full testament film um what is fully uh the vast landscapes of west texas after the war um uh, and he, it, 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 it sounds like he not only fought through the Confederacy, but he was through the Mexican Revolutionary War. He has acquired a lot of gold uh, that is uh, unmarked. <laughs> and uh, clearly there was a bit of a treasury break. Um, and he has returned to the homestead of his brother, Aaron. Uh, and uh, along uh, in, the, in that house uh, is uh, Martha Edwards, um, Lucy Edwards, Aaron Edwards, and Debbie Edwards. Um, this whole family that he's greeting, he, you know, it's a big, you know, big old homecoming welcome of, you know, like it, there's a war, he, they're glad to have him back. He's been away for far too long. Um, you know, little, little, uh, Aaron is very, very, very much wanting to be just like his uncle. Um, it's an alarming degree. Uh, it's, 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 it's <laughs> he says a line that I know that swords are called sabers, Adam, at this time, and that's uh, historically accurate to its own extent. But when he said, "Can I have your saber?" I almost wanted to hear John Wayne go like, "Sure, the force will be with you always." <laughs> to, like, just really wanted, like it just the, to the point of his devotion to him, like this, like mentor mentorial relationship that will go nowhere, by the way, because Aaron's not long for this world. Um, neither Very is the majority. Of, yeah, no, well, <laughs> do you care if we spoil this movie anymore, Adam? At this point, like, <laughs> no, I'll just point. I will point it out as we go. Yes, exactly. Uh, as we go along, we will see that. Um, so they, 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 he gets settled in, and then he has a confrontation with his brother about why he, basically why he left in the form of, well, other people around here have been packing up and leaving. But you didn't pack up and quit. You didn't leave. Um, only war basically kept you. That was the only thing that took you away. Or And he, so there's a testy relationship with this family and there's a theory adam about his relationship with martha which i didn't know existed until today um but that apparently it's purported by many or assumed by many that clearly martha and ethan had an affair or some kind of attraction to each other that then led to Debbie being born, <laughs> which I'm like, I don't know. I don't if, know. All, I don't know if, all about that. I figured because yeah, that is also new to me. I figured that Martha chose Aaron over Ethan. Mm-hmm. And okay. there's still that fire burning for her lusting after her yeah but it's like well you're married to my brother so by the laws of god and the old west i can't uh break these bonds of matrimony um because i'm a traditionalist 
And you'll see the extent of that throughout this entire picture, kids. <laughs> like, Says the person that was married three times. Yeah, yeah. well, I, I didn't say that I had to live by this. I'm like a cult leader, Adam. People follow me, but I don't have to follow my own rules. <laughs> he is kind of like a cult leader in that respect. A lot of people worship and admire him. Sure. He has multiple wives. <laughs> He's done a Playboy interview. <laughs> like, there's, there's just though, there's, there's, there, you know, he might have been, he might have had the 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 cult of the Duke, the the, the Duke cult, if you will. Um, but no, he's right here. He's just a, he he he's just a conf- ex Confederate. He's left this. He's left the war, like behind him. He's now like the, the something I wanted to ask you a little bit about Adam. You might be more privy to this than I am. Is like the idea of the Confederate soldier as the primary protagonist in a Western, especially of this era. Let alone throughout. It's, it's a, a that's it's a, a bold choice. Yeah, it's but it's a choice that gets made so often throughout cinema's history. Going back to the General with Buster Keaton, where. The whole goal of the the general is Buster Keaton wants to be a Confederate soldier to impress his sweetheart, and he he has to save her from those damn Yankees. <laughs> I look at it like this. I look at it as a lot of Hollywood was a lot more racist than we thought because they are propping these characters up as these soldiers that broke away from the United States and rebelled and had an armed insurrection against Mm -hmm. the United States. And no, I'm not talking about January 6th. Hi-oh. And yet, people still prop up the idea of the Civil War and the Confederacy as this northern aggression against the South. States' mm-hmm. rights, kick rocks. Yeah. Um, and yet it was the Confederacy that A broke away from the Union, and B they fired first. Yeah. And invaded a military installation. Anyway, but there's still this romanticism with the Confederacy of this gentleman, Southern dandy of a soldier, and it's. Like, no, you're just, it's just a bunch of racists going around fighting the union so they can keep their unpaid labor. Right. And, and it's actually, can I interject for a second to add on to your point? Um, This trend is not only present in old Hollywood, it extends into the 60s, 70s and 80s. Um, I'm not trying to throw Clint Eastwood under a bus, but a lot of his Westerns, particularly ones that he directed, uh, up until for Unforgiven have to do with Confederate soldiers. Outlaw Josie Wales is about a Confederate soldier who is whose life is upended by Yankee soldiers. So or Union soldiers, I'm going to say. So um, uh, yeah. there that's an image that permeates. And part of me wondered is that like, are they still looking at this as like, Oh, because there are these rebels who fought this lost cause. Are they just wandering now wondering where their purpose lies? Is that why they can still stick these figures in here? Um, and I think part of it, I would say part of it is like this idea of, well, this was a lost cause. We were conned 
into mm-hmm. thinking this and now it's like what do we do now there's parts of it but at the same time there's a lot of i guess respect for some odd fucking reason towards yeah. the confederacy and a hatred for union soldiers too <laughs> exactly mm-hmm. to be as if it were Oh, well, it's basically Hollywood saying, oh, there's fine people on both sides. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is um, which is a very uh, which is a very hot button topic to push if you want to get into discussion in the last four years because of statements made out loud by people. Um, and Hollywood, and- Hollywood continually, continually, continually never. uh never comes to rectify any of their past mistakes. Mm-hmm. They just brush it to the side and be like, oh, well, it was a long time ago. We're not like that now. It's like, well, yeah, you are. Yeah, the, it's it's funny that, like, for all the times they try to push it off to the side as it's nothing, I'm like, but I have evidence in my Blu-ray and DVD collection that says otherwise, sirs. Sirs, question mark. Like, it's like, I'm. I, if you didn't want people to know that this existed, you shouldn't have done the right the thing that I'm glad that you did, which is archive all your old titles and make them MOD and available for collectors to buy or for uh, the mass audience to watch on things like HBO Max because this movie is available on HBO Max. You know, for anybody to watch. Not, not, not right now. It's not. I just oh. I checked on HBO Max last night because that's oh, where really? I was going to watch it. I was like, yeah. Because I mean, HBO Max is a thing where they are constantly cycling. Oh, okay. Uh, so it's, titles it's on and off. Okay, so it's not the Gone with the Wind situation where they took it off because they're just like, oh shit, this thing's really, really problematic. No, it's just cycling. No, it's okay. just yeah, it'll be back. You know, so if you ever want to, if if it ever comes back and you're listening to this episode and you're like, well, say I want to see this movie that everybody's so up in arms about, well, now you can. Um, you can also watch that other movie that it has an extra bonus feature that provides historical context as to why that film was popular at the time. But we're not talking about that movie. We're talking about Ethan Edwards' adventures in the Old West. And right now, uh, he is, uh, he 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 plans to stay and pay his fair share there. Um. The next day pops up. It's a big, bright breakfast dinner at the... A uh, breakfast... <laughs> breakfast dinner. That sounds delicious right now. A breakfast at the... uh at Brinner. The, Brinner, yeah. I do a lot of Brinner. Make some, make some nice protein-powered waffles from the, from the, from the, from the uh, oven and uh, make some bacon, and I'm set for the night, Adam. Um, and, uh, but anyway, they're going to have breakfast, and they are settled around for the morning and in walks in. Well, first of all, we've learned that Lucy has a sweetheart named, um, Brad, uh, Brad Jorgensen, uh, played by Harry Carey Jr. Uh, who was the son of Harry Carey Sr. Who got Ford his start. Um, and, uh, you know, everybody's like giving her shit about the fact that she has a, a, a boyfriend and could possibly leave this settlement full of weird Confederate weirdos. And uh, and maybe, you know, learn something about the world. I don't know. Maybe they could both learn or something or maybe they just stay racist. I don't know. Anyway, doesn't matter. They're about to have breakfast and in walks in not just folks like ben, Brad Jorgensen and his uh, father, Lars Jorgensen, but also um, the blowhardiest of blowhardiest people, 
played by a really great actor, Ward Bond. Um, but the Reverend Captain Samuel Johnson Clayton, which sounds like it clearly came out of uh, out of like the the pulpiest of pulp novels or like Western like Western adventures of the era. But um, Ward Bond is pretty wonderful in terms of a legacy as a character actor. He's most known as Bert in It's a Wonderful Life. I think that's really his that's the mass thing he's known for. Um, and you, the interactions between him and Ernie have become so synonymous that people think that there are two puppets named after them, um, which is kind of true, not true, but it's, it's a weird issue. Um, but anyway, Captain Reverend Captain Samuel Johnson Clayton comes into the house and starts demanding breakfast, <laughs> and starts demanding attention because he is about to recruit all the men into this search party to find out what happened to the cattle that have been stolen from Lars Jorgensen. And the shot, there's a, it's a, it's a locked off shot of him entering the frame, um, getting served breakfast, asking the children if they've been baptized yet. Which I don't, full disclosure, Adam, I don't think he's a real reverend at all. I think this is horseshit. (laughs) This is, this is a Western reverend where you could put on a hat and claim you're a reverend. (laughs) I mean, there's, weren't, probably wasn't too many prerequisites to be a reverend on the frontier. Oh yeah, no, all you had to do was love Jesus and uh, say you didn't like uh, women in sin, but and just did it anyway. And uh, <laughs> um, I think the only proper reverend that I've ever seen in a Western film is in Blazing Saddles, Reverend Johnson. Because <laughs> he, so far as I know, he doesn't do any uh, sinning and a killing, uh, well, apart from the end when he has to beat up the racists before they invade 1974. Um, but he goes into this whole spiel, recruits them, says, like, you're going to be drafted into my army without pay, their voluntary services. And, you know, Ethan comes up and goes, like, well, well, hold hold, hold on a minute. Like, <laughs> I just got home. I'd like to have breakfast with my family. Why? And, you know, because they got to find out who stole that cattle, Adam. This is a Western trope. Let's find out who stole this cattle. Um, and... They all get up on a group of rangers to join them, and they they go off to find where the where the cattle have gone to, and they discover that the theft was Comanche uh, was a Comanche ploy to draw the men away from their families. Um, and Ethan doesn't go back right away. He tells them to go back because he's got to get these horses that have been found, um, grain and water, uh, and gives. Uh, the there's a lot of other people in this party. I thought he party. was talking about. I thought he was talking about his horse, like because oh, they've ridden forty miles. Oh yeah, yeah, and it's for and it's forty miles back. Martin was gonna head back, and he's like, "Are you coming or not?" He's like, "These horses need grain and yeah. rest." And, and it, because Martin's horse dies. Yeah, and it's Moses Harper is the one he's stuck with. Hank Warden, uh, Warden uh, in the movie. Moses Har- Moses Harper, who is uh. Uh, an integral character in the film, but he's the one who's kind of goofing off as John Wayne's going like, look, shut up and give the horse some food. Um, And yeah, actually you brought up Martin. We haven't talked about Martin yet. Martin shows up during this family reunion um, where Ethan comes back and Ethan is uh, not too pleased to see him, but Ethan saved Martin uh, as a child. They never got that. Yeah, but 
They never discuss that. They just uh, they did they just allude to it. They're just kind of just like, well, you know, I found you when you were a kid and I brought you here, but you're not their family. You're one eighth Comanche. Yeah. Yeah, because they bring up the fact that he's uh Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because they that they bring up the fact that he's one eighth Comanche and it's like and it's just like you're you they have, may have been family to you, but they're not family to you. They're your foster parents or whatever, you know, like it's and you know, and Jeffrey Hunter it seems like he's given like an over overish tan look to maybe suggest the the heritage in, uh, involved in it. I don't think it's the same thing as what we've got with Scar in the movie, um, but he clearly has a, a broader tan. Um, mm-hmm. But I mean, I'll 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 take a quick aside. Jeffrey Hunter looking looking suave AF in a movie like this it, it's it's very clear why you would want him on the enterprise at a some at certain point um and then to later put him in a wheelchair where he can only beep um <laughs> and uh but anyway martin yeah he he's the one his horse dies and uh ethan's just like don't be fucking stupid like these horses need to rest so anybody whose horse hasn't died yet go back <laughs> like um and we're left in this quote unquote horror environment um, as the family is on the search for like things out in the distance. Aaron is looking out past his homestead. He senses that something's wrong. Uh, uh, little um, uh, uh, the father. Uh, uh, sorry, I was trying to remember the father's name. If I got Aaron. Yeah, Aaron. Yeah, Aaron's the father. Yeah, Ben. Ben, the son, um, uh, is trying to help out too. Uh, Martha, Lucy, and Debbie are all inside. Martha is preparing to set the table, and she promptly tells Lucy, "Don't light a candle," because she's not telling the kids what's going on. The kids are unaware at this point, um, but she's aware, and she is scared shitless. Um, which I will say that. Dorothy Jordan does a good job with the scene she has in the movie. She's very good at giving off that, the fear that Ford is asking her to give off. Um, uh, and so they shutter, they start shuttering all the windows. Lucy accidentally lights a candle and she says, what the fuck did I tell you? And, uh, the, uh, and then suddenly it comes into Martha's mind. What's or into Lucy's mind, what's going on in this. And the camera does this weird shot where they just like hold on her and she does this isolated scream. And it is a very, very, uh, it's an odd shift before they, um, go back to shutting her up and then telling her what to do. Um, so it's a very, it's, it's another device that Ford is using to amplify the fear of what's out there unknown in the West, but primarily what's known in the West, which is their fear of Indians because of his portrayal of them in the movie. Oh, I'm Native Americans, sorry. Um, there I go being an idiot. But anyway, they get everything shuttered up. They plan on like basically barricading the house, but they send Debbie out through a window to run far into the graveyard. Um, and it seems like a dog gives away her position. Chris, the dog made note that this dog's name is Chris. <laughs> also, that's a terrible fucking hiding spot. It's like, Hey, go 30 feet from the house and 
hang out in the family grave plot. Wouldn't it make more sense to a run under the bunker that they were that they that they are later uh, burned alive in, or b to just run in any direction and cover and like 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 sift through? If you're, I I don't know how fast somebody like a kid in the frontier era can run, but it's got to be a way that you can avoid an area that somebody can clearly see. Like, yeah, it doesn't doesn't make a lot of sense, their plot. I don't know what they're thinking. It doesn't matter, though, because Chris the dog gives her position away by barking and chasing after her. This 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 dog, first of all, who names their dog Chris? Seven <laughs> times. It, it, yeah, I guess so. Chris was an odd name, so they were like, that's a dog name. <laughs> Um, but at any rate, she gets in front of a tombstone and we we see a shadow emerge above her. And then we just get this locked off medium shot of Scar. Um, it's just very like, I got to be honest, like the buildup of this movie, rem- remove the remove the um, if you can the the negative stereotyping that's implied within the motivation of their fear on a visual level, Ford is setting up a very tense sequence. And then the payoff, the visual payoff of it ends up being a very standard shot that again, negatively portrays Native American as a threat, a threatening image um, and uh, a, th- a threat to someone's safety um, in, in, in frontier times. So like this is, uh, I, I just felt like ultimately it was a disappointing payoff in what is otherwise executed as a pretty solid tension sequence that I could see somebody like Joel and Ethan Cohen looking at that when they're then doing no country for old men, because a lot of their stuff is like a modern Western horror film, like kind of kind of vibe to it where they have similar moments of tension set up um, that revolve around setting up the suspense and then paying it off with something amazing. And then this one doesn't really do that. Um, nevertheless, um, uh, we get the return of Ethan. Um, and uh, they, uh, they, he has returned to discover that he and the group have returned to discover that the homestead is in flames. Aaron, his wife, and their son are dead. And that Debbie and Lucy have been abducted. Um, uh, they they have seen the homestead in flames. Um, Martin uh, is freaking out because he's worried that his adoptive family is dead. He doesn't know what's going on with them. I think it, you talked about it was like the bunker area or like the low level area that clearly a lot of it's like the bunkhouse or something. I don't know. Like it's like a separate adjacent. Like a, to the actual house. Exactly. And he tries to rush in there and John Wayne punches the shit out of him and says, don't go in there, you fucking idiot. I don't want you to get any kind of trauma or whatever. Like, you're not strong enough to see this because, see, you're one-eighth Comanche and I'm all white. And, <laughs> you know, like, that. that's like, I mean, I don't, I don't, I mean, that doesn't, it seems to be that he just doesn't respect, I think obviously the the one eighth Comanche thing has to do something for him, but I think ultimately Wayne's character Ethan just does not like Martin in general, and but also clearly Ethan doesn't like anybody. Period, really, except for Martha and Debbie. So, but that's another point of discussion that we'll get into as the plot goes along. Um, 
but they have a brief funeral, which is very loud and scattered with music. And John, 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 John Wayne's just like, all right, get an amen on it and let's get the fuck out of here. Like, and he, a woman in the community, as uh, Ethan is saddling up, is basically going like, look, I, I know that you would care for everybody, but like, do you think that Martha would want you to... Uh, to 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 go out and do this revenge quest, and he's basically like, "Well, I don't give a shit, ma'am. I'm gonna do whatever I want." And um, and he he basically tells Martin and Ben, "Are you coming with me, or are you not coming with me?" And together with the combined forces of Reverend Clayton, um, Mose, uh, Mo Mose Harper, uh, they all go set forth on the quest to find and track down Lucy and Debbie. Mm -hmm. Um, so, um, first of all, that funeral is scattered as all heck, but it's an interesting, uh, allusion to Ford's ability to really tap into, um, picturesque old periods of like settled America. He's done this in different forms and fashions with contemporary films of his era, like how green was my Valley and, uh, the grapes of wrath and even the informant where um, or the informer where you can see people commiserating in a community gathering and such. And uh, it is, it is a testament to his ability to stage a shot. Like he, he, he does make it feel natural, even though it's clearly set up and staged, um, which is, you know, I think when we're talking about somebody staging a shot or blocking those actors, um, a director that keeps getting popped up multiple times in the discussion of great blocking is Spielberg, almost 10 times out of 10. And that's clear that Steven Spielberg watched a lot of John, John Ford movies um, as research for what he would end up doing because... He stayed his 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 beautiful his blocking is beautiful in movies, hands down. I think um, that's I think that's the one thing that John Ford really has going for him, really in his just filmmaking portfolio. Mm -hmm. It's he's not I don't see John Ford as a great storyteller. I see him more as a great visual storyteller. He can paint a picture within the frame. Yeah. Um, normally, like he doesn't have anything to say that's profoundly deep, because most of what he has to say is profoundly racist. <laughs> yeah. Um, but his one strength is that he can go to a place like Monument Valley and just shoot the living shit out of it. Mm -hmm. Um like put the camera anywhere. Like he's not even like prepping fully in advance. He's just like, now nah, this is the place we're going to film today. Yes. <laughs> um, which is kind of like a, a, a callback definitely to his era in silent filmmaking. And actually, you know, Hitchcock, it, it, similar to Hitchcock, um, they both clearly preferred silent cinema over talking film in an interview with Ford that Bogdanovich did. He did say he he acknowledged he's like well of course you got to have talking pictures now that's that's what the public wants but you know you can get a lot out of just you know the actors uh, performing with their body and not necessarily with dialogue coming out and in fact it's always alluded to that his dialogue is few and far between and actually in this film there is a lot of instances where the dialogue is very disparate and 
There's not a lot like there's quotable lines in this movie coming mostly from Wayne. Um, but there's not um, there's not like monologues. Nobody's getting a heavy monologue, really, like not not particularly. Um, and what's more, um, when it comes to when he does have things to say, yes, in this movie and in a lot of his movies, it's profoundly um, insensitive, racist across the board, um, just outdated. Um, there are films in his early era like um, Grapes of Wrath and How Green Is My Valley where he is, for better or for worse, very much tapping into issues that you wouldn't expect Ford to be tapping into, um, whether it's you know issues of class, issues of poverty, um, in a way that isn't offensive. But it's interesting to note that that's a time before Ford becomes this very staunch anti-communist Around this time that he's making this film, he's a strong supporter of HUAC and a strong supporter of an America First committees and like or like the in the post World War II environment, not the same America First committees that were established um, uh, in the formation of Nazi Germany. Uh, it's a very different. It's very much you know the anti commie league essentially. Walt Disney was a part of it as well as long as well as the other major studio heads. Um, so to have him tackling issues like that back then, it's very clear that his viewpoint has shifted dramatically by the time he makes something like The Searchers. Um, and so when they are uh, they're on, on this trail, they're on the path, they come across the burial ground of a Comanche, Comanche who was killed um, during the raid. Uh, and by, bef- as they are on this journey, we get more interaction between Ethan and Martin and Martin, uh, Ethan basically establishes the relationship they're about to have where he's just like, you don't get to call me Uncle Ethan. You get to call me Ethan. Uh, you know, or you, uh, the, the line that he gives, which is probably a very quotable line for most John Wayne fans, is like, you don't have to call me Uncle. You don't have to call me Grandpa. You don't have to call me Methuselah. <laughs> just <Ding>. Ethan. <laughs> or, like, so, like, that is, again, we've got, some classic Wayneisms coming through the board here. One of the big lines in this movie is "That'll be the day," which he yep. says. Any chance he get, he milks that line like it's a catchphrase in the '90s. Adam, it is like palpable and thick, man. Which inspires the mm-hmm. song by Buddy Holly because mm-hmm. he saw this from he saw this movie in Texas. Yep, and he was just like, "Say that would make a good song." That'll be the day. And, the, and you know, John Wayne was just like, look, I don't really understand that whizzy-haired kid's songs, but I'm glad that he liked my work. I mean, I'm the Duke. Everybody loves me. Everybody. Sure. And, they'll keep, and they'll keep loving me, Adam, for years to come. Nobody will ever have a problem with me. Um, <laughs> but anyway, um, but yeah, they go to the burial ground of a Comanche warrior who was killed during the raid, and <laughs> Ethan... Um, well, first, Ben is about to, like, fucking smash in the head of this corpse because he's, you know, he's frustrated about Lucy being abducted. And then Ethan just goes, like, why not finish the job? And then shoots the, the corpse in the eyes. And the reverend's like, why would you do this? And he's just like, well, if you if you believe in their way of thinking, if you shoot his eyes, he can't enter the spirit world. He's got to wander around eternity or something. Like, it's, it's, uh... It's an interesting, uh, granted, let's get it off the bat, it's insensitive, but also the interesting part of it is is that the Ethan Edwards character as it exists, he knows how to speak Comanche, 
He knows their customs and ways. Um, and if you were going to film school logic about this, he's the man who knows Indians, um, which is a trope that would um, develop over time into the modern action hero. Um, not, not immediately from this movie, but just in general. Um, so he knows the trail. He knows the path. This is how he's the guide for this story. Technically. It's one of those things where it's like, he, he knows this because in his travels as a Confederate soldier, he learned these things, you know, so on and so forth. Yeah. All that stupid shit. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And so he, um, he is uh, establishing up front for the fact it's like, look, you don't know the enemy, Reverend. I know the enemy. Um, and so he, uh, they, they go over this strategy to try to figure out an attack. Um, Ethan just says like, well, let's go, you know, charge at him right now. And Clayton's going like, well, probably a stealth approach would be more appropriate in order to make sure the, that Lucy and Debbie aren't killed. And <laughs> Ethan's, just not having it he's just like this like, is i don't fucking care yeah there's a line about like uh uh he reverend says it's an order and he's like okay fine but then but the moment it fails don't give me another one um which is that's a very well written line uh, i <laughs> i was like that's a good line for an action movie about like you know the superior officer giving the action hero an order and he's just like all right general but then you know you could imagine a bruce willis kind of saying that you know in a in an 80s movie um uh you wouldn't imagine him saying that today right now he's saying i should have put on a mask in that store um <laughs> um but um uh anyway uh they uh uh they go to they find a camp that's deserted further along this trail they get driven into an ambush and they have a um a big old shootout amidst a, a, a wide expanding river um this is an example of if you turn the sound off on this movie and just watch the visuals you are watching a uh, a silent western done with all the modern techniques and aesthetics the 50s have to offer and mm-hmm. you know and turning the sound off is kind of beneficial if you don't want to hear all the insensitive things but more importantly if you're watching it you are watching like a lot of modern western filmmaking and action filmmaking being formulated here by the means of the silent film era and specifically silent westerns of the era um it's a very well staged and executed shootout in the from the technical scheme um it's a very uh um one line of the river against another um i kind of got vibes of the eventual shootout in true grit the remake of true grit uh where you have barry pepper on the far end and jeff bridges on the other far end before they start charging at each other um and actually another moment of ford's um uh, mis- uh, uh, intentionally misguided views is like you know again like these the these Comanche you have to now kill them because it because they've failed to like get them to get away completely like he he's got to they've got to kill them now because otherwise they'd be dishonored and um Moses uh gets ready for the fight by saying like Lord th- grant bless us with the things we are about to receive and then they start this shootout and at which uh, point uh, they uh, the Rangers uh, are kind of decimated a little bit like they, they they fend it off but they there's too few men to fight them off effectively um, so Reverend John uh, Reverend Johnson and uh, Clay, Reverend Clayton Moses and everybody else 
flees or they go they they go back home uh, and it leaves Martin and uh, Ben and Ethan alone on this journey now um and so that they're the way the journey is going to carry out at this point is one it's one we're going to be getting rid of a of, of a what you thought would be an important character given the um that one of the characters Lucy is an older character that's been abducted um but also we start to see the devolution of like or the development I guess of the relationship between Martin and Ethan um and so uh uh Brad uh and Martin are kind of going along with Ethan's pl- uh, plans amongst their search um Ethan goes off and leaves them alone and then returns without his Confederate coat um and I wanted to bring this up because I found this interesting because like I, obviously it's revealed afterward that it's not this case but there was this one moment where I was thinking of just like he doesn't go back for the coat. So like his attachment to the coat and more or less to the Confederacy is pretty much irrelevant at this point, irrelevant at this point. Like he's like the, 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 the uniform of the Confederacy doesn't really mean much to him. That doesn't, that doesn't mean anything in the grand scheme of Ethan as a character, but it is an interesting note of just like, is it, I wondered if it was a way of Ford or the writers of the film, uh, to, tap into the whole lost cause thing again, the disillusionment after losing this war and feeling duped by the, the whole cause of the civil war and whatnot, or like the way that the South pitched it to them. But in any case, it doesn't matter because Ethan's motivations for leaving the coat behind are more um, plot based than anything else. Yeah. <laughs> they have nothing to do. Those are just thrown out the door. That idea is thrown out the door when, he reveals that Lucy's dead and he buried her in his coat. Yeah, exactly. So the next scene is that they're hiding out. Um, they're camped out um, with a command trail not too far off behind them. Um, and uh, B- Brad uh, finds out from Ethan that, yeah, I found Lucy r- murdered and presumably raped in the um, uh, in that canyon we were at. And I covered her with my coat and, uh, and the and the, the way they get around the discussion of rape in this film is the same way you'd have to do it in old Hollywood at this time, which is you know like a, a look of horror, like no words being said or going like, "Do you want me to spell it out for you?" The way is the way that Ethan delivers it, um, or like never ask me to bring up that image again, stuff like that, um, and uh, so in 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 frustration and anger, Brad rides directly into this camp and is killed off screen with Martin trying to go after him, but then Ethan telling him like, no, no, no. And that, that was, that was an interesting decision for Ethan to make because I was like, that's why would you let him just go off? Like, is it, do you understand that Brad now has nothing but like the same rage that you have or something? Cause like, I guess yeah. If he's lost Lucy, he's gonna make that decision. Or what? It's more. It's more or less like a suicide. Uh, a, a um, uh, a, a last stand for Brad at this point. <laughs> like, um, I didn't really know if there was much to it, but it was interesting that Ethan pulls Martin back, a, a character that he could give two shits about as established early on. <laughs> like, um, yeah. But um, 
so anyway, they continue on their journey to the point of winter. Something that I don't think people realize about the searchers is that this thing, this movie takes place over the course of five to six years. Yeah. I was curious about what the timeline of that. Um, and also where are they going? Yeah. Because they go to, they end up in New Mexico or what is known as the New Mexico territory. If we can kind of speed things along with the plot, they kind of go through, um, they run into uh, a union encampment in their winter travels. Yes, they do. Uh, they um, find they find some white women who have been driven mad while they were uh, hot. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that deserves a whole full on discussion there too. But anyway, anyway, the, you know, I I don't know. I I feel like they've moved out of the Texas territory at this point because if they're searching along for over a year before they get to. Um, the Jorgensen Ranch, like they must have been going around various different areas. So it's not. I I would assume they've gone into maybe someplace like, I don't know. We I should have a map of the United States of America up for this. Um, but um, uh, it seems like maybe in like Texas. So yeah. If you look at it. They're in Texas. They head west. There's New Mexico is west of Texas. Mm-hmm. North of New Mexico is Colorado. Right. And then there's Utah that is west of uh colorado yeah which are all primarily filming locations too so maybe that's the trail that they circle around in there's also oklahoma within their midst which is not west but it's you know it could feasibly conceive within a trail because again we don't know their trail because there's not really a map it's almost like the john ford treats the west as an entire thing and he's not he only gets specific about the territories when he needs to, which in a way is a smart move because it doesn't if you it's 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 kind of like, you know, discussing Star Wars. If you get too bogged down in details, you forget that it's a movie about space wizards. But, you know, like <laughs> um, I thought but, it was about galactic tax collection. Oh, go. Well, that's that's all. About the intricacies of um, galactic tariffs and tax collecting. Well, that's one part of it, Adam. And then the other part of it is about uh, intergalactic democracy being unfolded at the seams, courtesy of Jar Jar Binks' decision to (laughs) give over emergency powers to um, Ian McDiarmid. Um, And and then, of course, the whole idea. And then, of course, we have to deal with the intricacies of a whole new First Order being formed after the remnants of the Empire. And a 30-year span has passed. I'm not here to talk about Star Wars. Um, I'll talk about Mandalorian later, though, because technically there's connections to this, I guess. Um, but uh, anyway, uh, they, regardless of what their trail is, I think it's safe to say that by the time they get to the end of the movie, they are basically back within the Texas area or at the very least in New Mexico territory. So their ultimate destination is New Mexico uh, or in that general area. Um, but I would say if it's the winter location, it's probably Colorado or um, Utah. Um, so that would be my guess for the most part. It's definitely not Wyoming. They didn't go that far up. Like that would have yeah. that would have meant a twenty year journey. Um, so they spend about roughly it looks like about a year or so, you know, like searching before they head back to the Jorgensen Ranch, um, and. Martin is welcomed very enthusiastically by Jorgensen's daughter, Lori. Lori is, of course, played by Vera Miles in a performance that 
uh, confuses the shit out of me to this day. <laughs> it's very of its era. That's not the part that confuses me. <laughs> yeah. The part that confuses me is her um, unwavering sense of love like, and devotion. Yeah. It's very, very um, convenient for the plot. It's very convenient to give Martin a love interest. Vera Miles is not an integral part of this movie, and that's a shame because Vera Miles was a wonderful actress of the era. And to have her not doing anything, really, apart from pining for Jeffrey Hunter, which... That entire subplot is just... Un, just isn't needed. You don't a, need it. It's It's annoying. Yeah, Adam, it's annoying. And I'm not like, look, I, there was a time in my life where I would advocate for less romantic plots in movies and advocate for more action or more darker content and themes and whatnot. Nowadays, I prefer a love story. But like the, the, the rewatching this movie for the show, I was like, nah, 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 take this shit out. This isn't needed. You can have her maybe flirt with him, but I don't need the full-on love plot here because where it goes later on in the movie is ridiculous. It has some of my favorite scenes in the movie as a result of it, but it's still not needed. Um, it just, it's boring and we can, Hey, how about this? We write that wrong by just skipping over that entire subplot. Yeah, we could skip entire that entire subplot. Um, for the most part, I do want to bring up one portion of it because it leads to my, my favorite scene in the movie that has nothing to do with Western landscapes, I guess. But, um, but the, the, the bulk of this actual plot (laughs) is that, um, Mrs. Jorgensen and Mr. Jorgensen, um, are consulting with Ethan about what to do. Ethan's basically like, look, you can keep, you can keep my not nephew or whatever and uh, keep him on your ranch. And I'm going to keep on going looking for Debbie. And uh, he tells this to Martin after um, some nonsensical love plot happens. Uh, And uh, uh, Martin is not having it. And the reasons for Martin not going along with that, I will say I like the way they unfold in the movie. I like the way it's revealed why he's not going to give up this search because he has a very good uh, good reason for not leaving the search. Um, they get a letter, though, from uh, from a uh, Charlie McCory um, who provides a piece of uh, Debbie's clothing, um, presumably, um, mm-hmm. and... It's been found at Futterman's trading post um, led by Mr. Futterman. Uh, And so that's where they set off to. Um, Some stuff happens before with Martin and Lori. But again, we're not talking about that because it means nothing to this movie. Um, And uh, uh, so they go to Futterman's trading post and they learn through means of bribery uh, on the on the behest of Mr. Futterman. Um, who is looking for the, there is a reward posted. It's not really mentioned a bunch, but there is a reward posted for information about Debbie or the retrieval of Debbie, like a thousand dollar reward. And they, he gives them 30, not just a thousand dollars, but a thousand Yankee dollars. Oh, Yankee dollars, Adam, you know, like, cause they weren't accepting Disney dollars at that time. They weren't <laughs> accepting Best Buy bucks and there, but they're, so they, they get the information from Futterman uh, that he has been um, taken by Scar, 
this is what they learn is that it's by the 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 chief of the Noweka band of Comanches um and uh they leave Mr. Futterman basically going like you know he 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 alludes to the fact like look I might be lying or they might have lied to me and actually Ethan's the one who goes like or maybe you lied to us and he's just like well then you'll never know and so they leave on the authority that you know that the information is good and that Ethan will deliver on the thousand dollar reward um the thousand Yankee bucks um uh and so they camp out in the middle of the dark and Ethan uses um, Martin as bait essentially to discover that Futterman was planning on, um, I was trying to figure out if he was like going to murder them or not, but he, it doesn't matter because Ethan shoots Futterman in the back uh, along with Futterman's gang. I don't know why for the double cross. Yeah. I I mean, unless he was trying to say like, maybe he's got the thousand dollars on him now. So maybe I could just get the money from him then, which again would, if there's one thing you could say about Ford's Westerns is that they are harsh in the way that most people want to portray the West, especially today. Like, but unlike today's films, Ford's still look pretty. Whereas now a Western looks gritty. Um, You could say it has a lot of true grit. Um, And then there's, but they they kill them. They shoot all. He shoots all the members in the back, and then he collects his money back, which ends up f- technically fucking him for like a slight second near the end of the movie. But it doesn't matter now. He gets back his money. Um, and uh, over a year or more passes. <laughs> it's kind of unclear. I think it's over the course of maybe three to four years at this point. Lori receives a letter from Martin, um, and her well, no, reason. It's, it's a it's still within that year because they make it. Uh, Mr. Jorgensen makes a claim when I don't when the dumb I can't even remember his name because he was so dumb. Uh, oh, um, Char- Charlie McCory. Charlie McCory. Yeah, Charlie. The- when Charlie shows up with, uh, with the letter. Mr. Jorgensen says, another letter in the whole, in the same year. Oh, goodness. They got two letters in one year. So in terms of popularity, the Jorgensen's are A-listers. Yeah. Oh, they are getting all the mail, Adam. If they had <laughs> Frontierland Instagram, they'd be getting all the comments and likes. They'd get all the DMs. Like <laughs> Charlie would be tweeting. Charlie would be re- uh, sending and delivering those tweets because that seems to be his job apart from playing the guitar, uh, and all and also sounding like he came. I know I alluded a lot to the Coen Brothers in this episode, but I'm going to keep doing it because he sounds like he comes out of a Coen Brothers movie, <laughs> like it's just like, like something like a, an Old Brother Where Art Thou, or even to an extent about a Buster Scruggs kind of area. Um, mm. But they read this letter, and in this letter we get more story. Um, Lori's reasonings for wanting to read the letter don't matter. What matters is the content of the letter, um, and uh, which I think is a really great. This is actually a really good plot device because mm-hmm. it's kind of breaking away from the monotony. Breaking, like I understand why they do the love story, and so it's breaking away from the monotony of always staying with um, Ethan and um, what's his face. 
Um, oh, um, Jeffrey Hunter, um, Captain Captain Christopher Pike of the USS Enterprise. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, you're right. It does break it away, and it's a and it's a nice cross cut. Yeah, and it's a nice way to tell a flashback. Um, so it's like a flashback, but then also leads you gently leads you into the present. Mm-hmm. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a great way to segue into it. But a lot does happen in these scenes because uh uh the uh they they are on the trail. They uh, they start trading with different tribes. Um and the thing that you clarify at this point because we're going to get to a part of the film that I had issues with in addition to all the other issues. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. It's like a weird thing to say, like, I had an issue with this movie that's full of issues. <laughs> um, but uh, the uh, the tribes as described in uh, this film, which seem to pertain to not just many other Western films, but historical novels as different tribes had different agendas, goals, etc. I don't know the intricacies of this. This tribe that they trade with is a command is a Comanche tribe, but it's not the same Comanche tribe that they are after. So it seems like the Noeka band is like a renegade, renegade tribe um or a war tribe of some kind. Kaskar has a reputation, clearly, as indicated by the reactions of his name from other tribes as well as yeah. folks outside of this. So Ethan's looking for information. Martin's trying to trade. And in the process of trying to trade goods for like just a blanket, he ends up buying a Comanche wife um, uh, who um, is uh, is a character that, hold on, I want to get, her name Beulah Arculetta is known in is her Comanche name means wild goose flying in the night sky. Um, but the, she, uh, ends up going by the name of look because that's the English word that she hears and says out loud and thinks that that's what Martin wants, um, her to call herself. Um, she apparently, Native people are just uneducated. Yeah. Yeah. Let's get into this this uh, character. Um, Wild Goose Flying in the Night Sky is a character that is set up as a comic device and a comic prop. She is not treated as a person. Um, oh. Her only useful, the only way you, Ford uses her for the plot is to further establish Scar is terrible. Um, but the way that I think what's there, this, this, this whole thing has a lot of connotations around it. The, 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 the worst of it being that John Wayne is, this is actually the scene where we reveal he speaks Comanche because Mm -hmm. he's trolling Martin about, uh, him having a Comanche wife, because if there's one thing Ethan likes more than being insensitive, and the anti-hero of this movie, he likes giving people shit, even if it means he's got to speak the language of the people that he hates. I don't, I don't know what this um, character turns about necessarily. I just, I, it's it's supposed to be funny, 
I don't it I it doesn't work at all today, certainly. I can't imagine it really working with anybody past the seventies, really. Um the uh the kill the, 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 the capper of it all is is that when she goes to bed with him uh in, in the camp out, he kicks her down a hill. Uh and that was just like kind of my limit on that scene where I was like, I, I'm done. I'm done. Like I, I know I had seen the scene before. I guess I must not have paid much attention to it. Cause that really unnerved me watching the movie. I was just like, this is, yeah. this is, this is just fucking wrong. Um, and, and I think this is, this is also this movie. You should also, I would attribute to, Ford's undoing as one of the quote unquote masters still don't like that term. Just be like, Oh, well they're master filmmakers. And I don't, I certainly do not prescribe to the auteur theory because I think it's fucking stupid because you're not the only person making a movie. Yeah. It's a community effort. <laughs> so it's, yeah, if anyone's uh, an auteur, it's usually the writer. Uh, anyway, I digress, but I think things like that and just, just blatant, like you said, just using someone, a person as a prop to belittle and just completely show as a second, maybe even second class, but like fifth class citizen mm-hmm. to an indigenous tribe. Yeah. It's just like, can't deal with it. Yeah, and there's um there's there, there was a thing that popped up in my mind Adam which is going to sound weird but I uh, hear me out on this is that um not too long ago I revisited the movie Go West which is a Marx Brothers a latter era Marx Brothers movie um where one of the one of the many reasons it's unwatchable um first off being that it is um not great Marx Brothers material at all there's a huge scene where uh, the Marx Brothers themselves find themselves near a uh, Indian tribe, and the jokes are just—they fall flat. I, I don't, I, I don't think the Marx Brothers were fully aware of that attitude at the time because they were actually very progressive for their era. But regardless, it's inexcusable. That's the same amount of frustration I had watching that scene, which is just like, I just don't do this. Like, don't, don't fucking do this. And what's more, the tribe that they are trading with in the prior scene before he buys her, uh, the father character is smoking a cigar in a, in a rocking chair and then puts on that top hat with the feather on it. And it's, it's an image that has been used again and again in in front of every Western memorabilia shop that you see in a small town to this day, especially in Colorado. It's all over Colorado. It's definitely around um, towns where I visited my grandparents when I was growing up. So like, you know, it's, it's just, it's just sad, but she leaves actually like the thing that we'll talk about it plot wise on this particular moment, is that she leaves because she hears the name of Scar and gets freaked out. Um, But it's unclear as to what's freaking her out or why she's leaving, but she leaves an arrow in rocks to indicate either where she went. Ethan's not even sure. He's like, it's either that she, she showed us where she was going, but for what reason, we don't really know. 
Um, and, uh, they, uh, they basically, uh, they, their trek leads them to another burned out encampment where it's discovered that wild goose flying in the night sky has been slaughtered by this cavalry that has, uh, raided the tribe. Um, and there's, there's this unjustified based off of what we discussed moment where Martin and Ethan are feeling sorrow over her death where I'm just like, this feels disingenuous because of the way you've presented the previous scene. <laughs> like, it's just like, I don't think you really, ha I you definitely have not earned this moment at all whatsoever of any form of like sorrow or shock if that makes sense um like i don't know if that makes sense but it's just like it's it's just like it just feels weird to just suddenly treat somebody like a prop and then all of a sudden go like oh she's dead I, it's terrible why would they do this uh, justice for wild goose flying in the night sky it's just like this is is this is disingenuous um, exactly but the uh cavalry raid leads to another scene which is all kinds of loaded they go to see if Debbie is among the white people that were captured by the tribe that would be, have been rescued by the cavalry and they go in there and there are two young girls. Well, there's, there's four alive white people. Um, two of them are older women who look like they've been through an insane asylum. Uh, and then two young women, ch children basically who have war paint on them and, have look like they basically look like they've gone stark raving mad. Um, and Ethan says that they're no longer white. And, and I think, I think around the halfway point, that's when you really see the overt racism throughout. Um, because in the beginning, it was just a few things being said with a few subtextual hints, but then right about the time where Martin quote unquote buys his wife is when it's just now no longer subtle. It's just Indians for um, Native American nomenclature. Yeah. yeah uh, are bad. Yeah. Look at these. It's the whole idea of the savage yeah. and, um, these white women have been tainted and they've gone mad because of this. Mm -hmm. Because of being with these savages. And the only reason there are some good good savages <laughs> is because they have been saved by the white men. Yeah. And the and or like agreements with them have been made for trade or uh, agreements in regards to the reservations in which they live on. Um, cause it's not, cause Adam, it's not as if they're being pushed off their reservations mile by mile at a time to the point where they have no land to go to like that. It's not even, you know, even like, that, that could never happen. Right. That could never happen at all. <sighs> anyway, we're going to talk more about this moment though, too, because he says that like, they're no longer white. Ethan as a character, has a weird arc throughout the movie in terms of definitely modern day, but I'm wondering how it even was read in the, in the era too. 
but not by every not by the mass audience but more so like more educated camps of the world because he he is um he is i i don't think it's unfair to say that ethan isn't he, he is definitely treated as the hero of the movie or as the anti-hero of the movie but Ford isn't really necessarily like making any great case for Ethan being the greatest human being in the world. Like the character wears his hate on his sleeve and it's, it's interesting because you're, this is supposed to be your hero of the movie. So it is that anti-hero thing, I guess that you're referring to. Um, but it feels off a little bit. I don't know if I'm reading into this correctly. I don't know if you had any thoughts on it. Well, I mean, he's leaning into the anti-hero thing. Um, the anti-hero character, it's tricky because it's... Because part of it is, yes, it's an anti-hero character. And I, I would maybe one of the first anti-heroes or... Well, not really the first anti-hero because we talked about... Um, on the previous pod, we talked about Walter Neff, and that was in the forties. Yeah, and we also talked about like Rick Blaine and Casablanca. So like, there's yeah. examples of this prior that don't have the connotations we're talking about now. I guess what? But I, I guess, guess what? Yeah, go ahead. Sorry, but I think this one is a more extreme version because it boils down to a man going out for revenge who on a on try okay a man who is out for revenge on someone who murdered his family mm-hmm. like that's that's the face of it but then you dig deeper and you add the layers like oh well he's trying to because a bunch of savage indians murdered him and it's like oh well he's also a racist and a former confederate soldier so it's those layers that were added uh and so that's going to part of the searcher's legacy of how far are you willing to go for your revenge and mm-hmm. how much does it consume you and can you be saved? So that's like the point that like some other filmmakers like Bogdanovich or Scorsese, that's what they focus on is just the very face value, which you can, but also at the same time, you need to dig deeper. You can't just be like, oh, well, it's just a man who's out for revenge, but can't and trying to be saved and find out that there's more. It's like, yeah, deeper. You're taking the easy. You're taking the easy way out there, Marty. When it comes to reckoning with the amount of new wave filmmakers that um, praise this film, which I will talk about a little bit as we wrap up the episode, but um and I'm not trying to throw Scorsese under a bus. That man has done for film theory and film dissection more than anybody on this earth, really, other than maybe Bogdanovich, who's done a lot of work in archiving a lot of these directors who are worth discussing and are worth talking about, like Orson Welles or talking to John Huston or talking to Jimmy Stewart. So I don't know what it says about their interpretation of Ford's work. And Spielberg's not innocent of this either. He openly wears his love for Ford on his sleeve. There is a moment where he, in the directed by John Ford thing, where he acknowledges 
Ford as a director and the abusiveness and the abrasiveness that Ford had as a director, which we haven't talked a lot about Ford as a director on this movie, but or in in general as a director, but he was a very uh, he was a very verbally abusive man on set, um, particularly to John Wayne, um, who, you know, I'm not going to like again, I'm not, I'm not going to like shy away from any moment of empathy that I would have for John Wayne, but I'm going to look at this as an actor working with a director, Adam. Um, it would suck to have to be yelled at as much as John Wayne was yelled at by John Ford um, on set, regardless of obviously them both being, you know, problematic human beings. Um, there are, there are stories that John Wayne tells in interviews, uh, with Bogdanovich and, uh, in other forms where he, he kind of laughs off the experience of being treated that way by John Ford. But then you hear stories by other actors where clearly John Wayne had a really weird insecurity when it came to Ford because he knew Ford treated him like trash at a lot of moments in time. And he wondered why he wasn't doing that with the other actors. And then it seemed like Ford in order to balance the scales would make the other actors feel bad. And then it would balance the scales in his mind. It's a very, very weird, weird, um, way he went about making movies which again ties into the fact that i think ford really saw this as a job he didn't see this as an art um he would probably later find it as an art to some form of extent in terms of how to make a film but he didn't consider his film's art if you listen to interviews he barely remembers things about his movies bogdanovich asks like what is there is there a trend uh do you notice a trend of your westerns getting progressively darker as it moves from something like stagecoach to something like the searchers he's like nah no nah nah you know like it's just nothing like it's a blank slate it's a blank slate wearing a wearing an la dodgers hat smoking a cigar in the middle of monument valley very 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 odd um and very very um uh, dismissive of, of his own accomplishments. Cause like, again, like I, it's almost like you want to tell John Ford, like, no dude, you are like, let's put your bullshit like to the corner for a quick second. You are technically a visual artist and you, you have defined how people film a landscape. The one thing that Spielberg talked about when it came to Ford is that he met Ford for a minute and he had him go through a bunch of paintings in his office and, uh, had him point out where the landscapes are, uh, the horizon is. And he says, when you learn that a horizon should be filmed from either the very top or the very bottom, but nowhere directly in the middle, that's when you'll know how to make a movie. So that was like the extent of his artistic advice. Um, and so it's interesting to note that the way he approaches this, I think it very much is at face value, which is says a lot about his reception to material like The Searchers or any other film that he's made that's had issues, um, and also to Wayne's reception of material, because as we discussed, he's not really an actor. He's a movie star, and he's going to read the part. If the part has the things he wants in it, he's going to do it. It's not too dissimilar from a George Raft who's like, Look, do I am I do I turn out to be the good guy at the end or do I do I do I kill this guy in the third reel because I'm a gangster like you know you you're following your your uh your typecasting to a T. Um and so like that's why I wonder like what there was a part of me that wondered like is Ford trying to actively say that Ethan's not a good guy but then I look at everything else and I'm like no it just doesn't it doesn't hold water. Like I don't think he's thinking about it that deep. 
So um, anyway, we'll move on from uh, the uh, the discovery of this to, to reveal that the letter has been fully read. Um, and, uh, you know, L Lori has her, you know, breakdown over the fact that Martin didn't say love Martin. And, you know, obviously that uh, gives Charlie the in to serenade her with a guitar uh, with uh, Oh My Darling Clementine. <laughs> um, and uh, uh, that leads that they, they, they continue their search. Time has passed. Ethan has grown gray hair. And uh, they reach a military fort um, and they go to a cantina, which is clearly labeled cantina. Um, one thing about this film that's interesting as a Western is that every location is very, very generic, um, almost by design. Like, it's the Old West, so this is the cantina, or this is the fort. Um, so it's like all, like nothing too specific is put into the production design. That's not a detriment to the production design, but you notice that things are labeled in a very generic manner, which may also explain why the map doesn't really matter. Um, when you, the only reason why you know you need to get into New Mexico is because they're about to deal with Mexican people in this movie. Um, uh, and, uh, the, the Hispanic people that they meet, um, are, again, we're dealing with very generic stereotypes of the era. Uh, I, I, you know, the Mexican man that helps lead them to Scar has a daughter that plays the castanets, which that in it itself is not so offensive. But then they get into um, uh, them eating and drinking. And uh, Ethan uh, uh, refuses. They're about to toast a drink before he reveals the information of Scar. And Ethan uh, puts uh, Martin's glass down and says, wait till you're old enough. <laughs> and I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I got a genuine laugh out of that from John Wayne. Like there are moments when John Wayne gets me and I'm like, that's a fun line. That's a good line. That's that's a cute line. I, I will accept that. Um, but then the, when they when he goes to eat and is being bothered by the daughter, she pours him a drink from her own little bottle. And then Ethan's like, well, we're going to go meet with Scar because they've discovered that the Mexican, the, 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 the Hispanic man who knows Scar is leading them to Scar. And they get up to go, and John Wayne tosses the drink that Martin was going to have into a fire, and that thing fucking blows up. <laughs> like, like this huge flame, and I'm like, I, th that must have been the strongest alcohol on on record like not even a question like <laughs> that's that's a thousand proof like just pure gasoline that martin was about to ingest um and there is a something to be said about a stereotype of heavy drinking mexican or, or hispanic character um there's a lot of jokes in radio of this era that pertain to tequila being very strong but i don't know if they're necessarily tied in too specifically to each other it more has to do with the way alcohol was made in different regions um but so the the fire thing is not necessarily a an offensive trope per se um that fire though is aggressive like i like i genuinely i genuinely shot back in my seat i'm like jesus christ this turned into like a universal uh, a universal tour guide ride <laughs> like we're in the backdraft building now it, like it's a good thing that the warner brothers doesn't have a searcher's room where that fire comes at you <laughs> like <laughs> um 
But they go to Scar's encampment where they meet Scar. Uh, and uh, it's revealed that Scar knows English, um, which makes sense because he's played by a white person. <laughs> um, and uh, and uh, they go into his tent to discuss trading. That's their in. They're, they're, they're fooling him by going like, we're going to discuss trade, but really we're going to figure out if Debbie's here. And uh, they go into the tent. Um, he's got his wives uh, circled around, but not facing Ethan and Martin. And then uh, Scar and uh, Ethan get into a discussion about the many men that Scar has killed. And one of the wives gives up to show uh, on a, uh, I think it's, I, I, it's like a long like stick uh, or a, uh, a, a tribal pole um the the many scalps that he has taken and they look and they without reacting so that they don't alert scar they see that the wife that is holding it is debbie um so this is where we are at the point where they have found debbie um uh and they agreed to trade tomorrow um which ethan has already pretty much figured out that scar knows who these guys are because they've been asking about him for five years <laughs> so they're not necessarily the subtlest of western heroes to say the least but i guess if this is the old west word travels over that course of time of course scar is gonna you know pick up on the fact that two people are looking for him and they would clearly fit the description of stories being passed around um from from place to place that they travel and encampments that they set upon. And um, we get the scene near the river where, um, well, first the Hispanic man that, that led them to the information uh, refuses money to join their band to raid the place. He's just like, I don't want blood money. Let's get out of here. Vominos. And then I'm like, oh, there's the offensive part. There we go. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, of course you, of course you'd have them do that. Like that's, ah, damn it, Ford. Um, uh, but this isn't untypical of other Westerns either. This isn't strictly a Ford thing either. I mean, like, I love Sergio Leone Western movies, but there are some offensive stereotypes in Sergio Leone Western movies. Not not even a question. Um, uh, and, uh, uh, and again, I like Quentin Tarantino movies. There are some offensive um, portrayals that, um, while toned back, are still an issue in his movies. Anywho... Um, uh, Martin and Ethan are talking about like, well, why didn't he kill us? And he's like, I guess it's a, a command hospitality or whatever. And um, it doesn't matter really because Debbie comes down from across the hill and um, uh, she uh, tries to tell them in Comanche language that to go. And Martin's going like, Debbie, it's me. Debbie, it's me. It's your, uh, it's, it's your brother, Martin. Um, because she's, he still sees her as his sister. And uh, uh, she then says in English, like, I waited for you guys to come back, and I, I, I prayed every night that you come back, and you never came. I'm Comanche now, and you need to... Um, uh, uh, and she wishes to remain with the Comanche tribe, and that she, they need to go. And then that's when Ethan pulls out his gun to tell Martin to stand aside and Martin shields her with his body. Now we're going to talk a little bit about Ethan and Martin at this point, because one of the things that the love plot does reveal 
for Martin is that Martin's mission on this quest is not just to save Debbie from the Comanches, but to save Debbie from Ethan. Because if Ethan is to get even an inkling that she has become Comanche um, to the point of culturally and um, of any kind, then he's going to shoot her dead. Um, and the connotation within this is that she has been kidnapped from her home and has the way the film is portraying it has been brainwashed into being Comanche. Um, and um, which is a, which is of historic fact that has been pointed out by historians, but the way the film portrays it is as such that it's treated like the ungodliest of sins and that Ethan, Ethan has, has to, and, and, and that, that Ethan, Ethan has, has to uh, cleanse, cleanse the, the sin of this. Of this. And, and like, like and, and it's, it's just it's, it's backward logic. logic. It, doesn't it doesn't hold water, ever, ever never, never held water then. then. Um, the, the only, only reason, reason that you get, get away with it in this era is because this is a, a the historical context within this of why this movie would be popular back in the day is the the Western legends and the Western mythos is still firmly planted in the minds of Americans at this point, and they would respond to a Western mythos and a Western legend like this. Today, in a postmodern world, we have a lot more disillusionment with those ideals and those mythoses that while we still do films about those mythoses, we tend to question them within every turn of the plot because that's how you make a progression in the genre, um, in any genre, it doesn't matter what it is. And in this particular one, this, this is, is the, this, this is the moment where Ethan's like, like, like well, Debbie's, Debbie's dead, dead to us then. then. And, and Martin, Martin goes like, no, 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 no. no. Like, like we can, can save her. her. And like, like both, both of them, them are working out of like, like Martin's, Martin's, Martin's more, um, more heroic than, than Ethan at this moment, moment hands, hands down. down. But, but again, again, you're still dealing with the whole like, the, the reasons, reasons they're, they're here, here the, the reasons, reasons that the film is portraying this as such a tragedy in Debbie's life and, and or in, and in their lives and the perceptions of Native Americans. And it is unfortunate, but it is the, um, in, in, in terms of a character moment for Ethan and Martin, it is the standoff between Ethan's values and his morality versus Martin's um, belief that the day can be saved. So it's almost like Ethan's disillusioned with the idea of a happy ending, where it is Martin's trying to hold out hope for it, um, which ends up playing a part in his discussion with um, Lori um, in the later scene we're about to get. Because so basically there's a raid after Debbie has tried to warn them um, and... Uh, uh, the, uh, Comanche, the Comanche uh, wound, wound Ethan, Ethan with an arrow, and, and uh, there's, there's a scene where Ethan writes out a will to Martin. Martin, Martin reads, reads it out loud very slowly because Martin can't, can't read very well. well. Um, that because he, he no longer has any blood relatives, relatives Ethan gives all of his money to Martin, and Martin, you know, you know, pretty much for the most part, like rightfully so, like throws down and throws down the note and goes like, like hell, you have no blood anymore. Like, what are you talking about? Like, you've got family. And he basically is like, he wishes that he would, he'd be dead. And Ethan replies, that'll be the day. Like, yeah, you know, classic. Yeah. Hey, Adam, 
you know, there's a reason why I've got t-shirts with my face on it. And there's a reason why I've got my own collection at Warner Brothers with all of my wonderful films where I say all kinds of offensive shit because everybody still loves it. Um, <laughs> you know, like it's it's very, uh, very, uh, it is a good Wayne line. It is a good Wayne line on its own face um, in his delivery. One thing that you can't deny about Wayne is, is that because of his vocal inflection and because of his swagger uh, with his movie star abilities is that he is a very memorable performer on screen. Um, that is unquestionable. Unfortunately, we're, we're, our memory, the memories of our dads are very foggy. And um, uh, uh, they go back to the Jorgensen residence where a wedding is about to happen, Adam, because Charlie McCory, oh, he uh, he managed to swim. Came courting. Yeah, he came a courting with that guitar and um, that that lovable, lovable great great grandfather of Everett McGill from O Brother Art Thou is just a, a, a courting this uh, this fair maiden for a big old wedding led by the Reverend Clayton, who's. <laughs> I guess he is an actual reverend because he's going to give a West, an old-timey Western wedding. But then Ethan and Martin show up, and the wedding is interrupted in, uh, briefly, um, and that's where Laurie and Martin have their whole rowdy tale about love. And, well, you should have known that I've always loved you. I just didn't think I'd have to say it. And I'm like, hey, you kind of do because, you know, communication's a thing. But, uh, you know, the, the, whatever, Martin. I'm not going to give you love advice. You know, this is not uh, this isn't a situation where I can talk to you through the screen and change the outcome of the movie because if that were the case, I'd be... I'd be addressing a lot of the first hour and 30 minutes of this movie before I got to you. <laughs> but, yeah. Um, but anyway, they, he and Charlie meet uh, and face off because he's just, he's doing, it, it, Oh, uh, Martin says, is this your finance? And I was like, Cohen brothers. And then, I, <laughs> and then I, and then I got my favorite scene of the movie, Adam, that has nothing to do with Western landscapes and, beautiful photography it has to do with the most polite fight ever this is the, the most this is the most polite fight ever they agree to duke it out like gentlemen first they tell each other after you because that's what proper gentlemen do when they fight right adam they they tell each other after you uh and then they go out there they put a log in the middle of them they have one person spit on one side they circle it and then they just start going at each other but then they all they, they occasionally they interrupt their fight because oh no 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 can't ruin can't ruin uh, i can't remember his name is but can't ruin click can't ruin can't ruin larry's violin so they, they you know they stop the fight for a minute to hand a violin back to somebody and then they immediately start duking it out again at one point uh charlie is biting the leg of martin or vice versa the reverend breaks it up and no biting like, no biting, biting and no kicking either because yeah, <laughs> martin comes up and kicks charlie and he's like hey no no kicking and yeah. then, yeah, they duke it out, and then it's just like, all right, well, I can't marry you, and then, then yeah, let's get into it. Let's get into the raid where everything yeah. just kind of yeah. Well, and dark. the lead up to the raid is quite um, remarkable, also in a Coen Brothers respect. I will say real quick because uh, Patrick Wayne. John Wayne's son plays Lieutenant Lieutenant Greenhill, who is officially my favorite character in the movie, because he is just the most awkward, um, uh, uh, 
Yankee uh, Yankee cavalryman who goes to report to Reverend Clayton about the sighting of the Comanche, and he said, and he basically says, like Captain Greenhill, sir, what? Who's Captain Greenhill? Captain Greenhill is Captain Greenhill, sir. And I'm like, this is the, the Cohen brothers watch the searchers. This is undeniable at this point. I'm just, I've got all the, all the confirmation I've ever needed in the world because that is a Cohen brothers line, hands down. Um, and so it's revealed that they know where the Comanches are. They get the plot, the plan is set for this raid. Um, I'm not going to too much talk too much more about Reverend Clayton, other than the fact that his involvement in the raid ends up with him getting. Um, uh, uh, skid mark burns on his ass, um, and having to have it alcohol swabbed. Um, uh, is that from? Because they talk about it twice. Is it because Lieutenant Greenhill was a little careless with his saber? That's not unfair, but being because a- there's twice he, you know, Greenhill whips out his saber and he's just like, "Watch that knife, boy," yeah. and. Yeah. But you and then to... <laughs> when they're like cleaning his ass wound, he looks, he glares over at Lieutenant Greenhill. He's like, oh, they messed up. So I, I always thought it was implied that uh, Greenhill, I don't know, mishandled his saber and ended up like stabbing him or cutting him in the ass or something when he was just flailing with it. Okay, that could be the case too. I took it as like ass burns and whatnot because I guess my attention was taken away by the fact that a lot of other stuff happens in the raid, but if that's the case, if that's the case, Adam, then here's what I'm going to say to that. Lieutenant Greenhill being my favorite character in this movie, which in a sense makes Patrick Wayne, the best Wayne actor in the Wayne family dynasty. He, um, Uh, he has every right to stab Reverend Clayton in the butt, in the ass, because at this point, my respect for anybody other than Lieutenant Greenhill has become absolutely nothing. (laughs) So, (laughs) And I know that sounds harsh, but Lieutenant Greenhill is the secret hero of this entire movie <laughs> because he gives an annoying character played by a wonderful character actor. What for? Um, but he is careless with the sword. I will admit that he is very careless with his saber, but it ends up saving the day, Adam. It ends up saving the day for my mind. <laughs> um, and uh, but anyway, the commence on the raid. Martin gets ahead of it and goes to get Debbie. Um, She's startled and she agrees to go with him. So already she's switched her stance from before. I don't know if she said she wanted to stay out of fear of Scar or what the case was, but regardless, Scar comes through the tent, but, um, and nearly gets the jump on Martin, but Martin turns around quick and shoots Scar um, and we don't see the result of it quite yet because we get some Ford Western action sequences going on here, which uh, the imagery of the raid aside, it is very well executed action. Now, that being said, it's a raid on Indians by white cavalrymen, and that's loaded yeah, but... imagery up the wazoo. So, again, we're dealing with the 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 duality between appreciating the technical acumen while understanding that this is all outdated to, to high heaven. Um Wayne, I'm sorry, Wayne, Ethan goes into the tent and sees that Scar is dead. Um, So it's clear that Debbie and Martin got away. Martin tries to stop Ethan from going after Debbie because he thinks that Debbie is going to, um, that he's going to kill Debbie. He corners Debbie near um, a um, 
a, cl- uh, a, a an entry into a cave or like a like a a, a hideaway in the rocks, and uh, it looks like he's about to go after her, and then he just picks her up, and says, "Let's go home, Debbie." Yep. And so his transformation from complete monster to on the surface not so much a monster is complete because he's decided not to kill her so that automatically makes him the hero of the movie which is complicated uh loaded imagery to try to save face for nearly two hours of ethan being an unconscionable monster (laughs) um uh, uh, or uh, from behavior to modern context alone. Um, and I don't know what it says about Ethan's character as it stands from the overall, overall overarching standpoint that he suddenly makes this switch because there's no real indication that he's going to change his mind, really. The only scene that would indicate it would be the scene at the cliff where Martin unloads on him. Um, so, um, well, I guess it should also be established that they got a lot of their information ultimately from Mose Harper, who all he wanted was a rocking chair and a house to live in. And he does get it and he gets all of his information by pretending to be crazy. And Mose Harper is also probably another fun character in the movie in the respect that he's like not really hurting anybody and not saying anything super terrible. So, you know, like it's, it's one of those things. Um, but anyway, they get them home. Lori and Martin can go on to have their relationship. Debbie is taken to the, uh, the Jorgensen house to stay with Mr. And Mrs. Jorgensen. We get a shot from inside the house, looking out at the door frame again. Uh, Martin and Lori go in. Debbie is led in by the Jorgensen's. We leave uh, Ethan alone, um, rubbing his arm from the battle that has taken place, uh, a man alone in the wind, and then turning around and leaving. Without, without any violence. More regular society. Yeah, yeah. He uh, No acknowledgement to violence or regular society. He is left, and the door itself closes. And that's the end of the movie. Um, now, when we talk about the ending of the movie, that's a that's a point that a lot of filmmakers point to as a very iconic image. And I'm wondering, based on the conversation we've just had, Adam, how has your viewpoint of the importance of the plot and the benefits of the plot, like or the or the way you read this film today, changed? Because you alluded to it earlier in the episode, and I'm curious, like how how do you watch the film now on the appreciation level that you can? So, I mean, when I first watched it as a wee lad, um, you know, I didn't know anything about it. I was like, oh, it's Western, uh, Cowboys, Indians, whatever. And then when I revisited it back in like 2006, 2007, I would say I noticed some things, um, where it's like Scar just talking in the stereotypical, you talk good for Comanche. I talk like this. I'm a yeah. robot. And yeah, yeah. Um, and and instantly just knowing, well, that's not very cool. But just kind of shrugging it off. Uh, but and then 
but noticing all the technical aspects and then going through school and things like that, reading and constantly revisiting. And every time I watch it, I'm just seeing new and new things pop up. Like, that's not great. That's not mm-hmm. great. And pretty much where I lie is the only appreciation I can have for this movie is one, the technical aspect mm-hmm. of how John Ford frames a shot. Um, Blocks his actors. Just, yeah, from actors blocking the framing of a shot, the just kind of use of just letting a scene play out. Things like that are just really well done. Just A plus, A plus, A plus. But then where the story comes in, where it's, okay, man wants revenge and he's going to go at great lengths to get it. And um, he can't be redeemed because he's not a redeeming person. Okay, that's a story. That's a story I can buy and get on with. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then, once again, like I said earlier, it's those layers that you have to, you have to, have to, have to contend with. And I feel like that's what a lot of movies, well, mainly historians, don't do with Golden Age Hollywood, where it is just simply just overt racism. With how John Ford depicts Native Americans and indigenous people. And it's not even just with John Ford. Shit. There's a movie where you can watch Mickey Rooney and... um, Oh my God, why am I blanking on her name? And Judy Garland. Literally dance together in blackface. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think the, we get so wrapped up in this idea of, oh, well, it's just the times. It's just a sign of the times. It was times. It was the times then. It was, it wasn't looked, it wasn't frowned upon. It's like, yeah, okay. It may not have been frowned upon. doesn't mean that it was good. Okay. Yeah. It doesn't mean that it's something that you're like, oh, it's just, you know, you still have to hold people accountable for their actions and kind of what they do, especially in what they are saying. Because like I said before, the imagery, that shit matters. That matters to an entire culture. Uh-huh. John Ford went through, I didn't, and I wouldn't say like completely wiped away an entire prior nation's culture, but it's close to it by just saying your culture, your opinions do not matter. Even when John Wayne in Ethan goes through on the rant of when he shoots out the eyes and then he's going to wander between the spirit realms. He says it as a joke. He's not there to, like as a teaching lesson. He's just there to tell them. He's like, see what I did to this stupid savage? He's not a Christian. And things of that nature. And 
I think there's a lot of people not willing to reconcile or come to terms with it. They're just saying, yeah, it's trouble. Like I said, where you read the uh, Roger Ebert quote earlier, mm-hmm. yeah. where it's Raj, he, he's saying it's imperfectly even nervously a, to depict racism that justified genocide. The comic relief may be an unconscious attempt to soften the message. Raj is like trying to play it both ways. Like, yeah, trying to be to say, yes, this is bad. But, you know, he's he is making amends. <clears throat> but I'm not saying, oh, well, we have to hold them accountable and cancel them. No, I don't think you go that far, but you have to use it as a teaching moment. You can't just gloss over and even you have to do more than just be a subscription provider like an HBO Max and say well this this depicts racism and uh, colorful language it's putting some sort of disclaimer at the front okay fine but you need to first say what this was was wrong how we these people and you you do have that hard way of going about it of um because now you're kind of finding it with some other people like are you able to separate the person from the art or the movie mm-hmm. as the case would be Woody Allen or Mel Gibson if in terms of Mel Gibson a gross racist anti-semite piece of shit mhm yeah. But does that mean that Lethal Weapon is terrible? Or what are your senses on Lethal Weapon? Um, Woody Allen. Woody Allen, I do not like whatsoever. And I I also say I don't like his movies. And because of mainly what he does from his personal life and his professional life. So, nope, can't deal with Woody Allen. But, and I think there's that hesitancy for a lot of golden age actors and filmmakers to kind of kind of get a pass where it's, I would say a footnote um, as part of their life and career, just because people are giving this excuse of, Oh, well, things were different thing. They weren't as woke then. And let's cop out. We still have to hold them responsible. Um, I think a good, like with John Wayne. John Wayne's just a terrible fucking racist person. We're going to be talking about that as we do the wrap-up in more detail. Um, Can I share really quickly my um, reaction going through this for the fourth time? Yeah. Um, in in my life. Um, When I knew we were going to do the episode, I was aware that there is a contingency of Ford fans and John Wayne fans that might listen to this show and Western fans in general. And that I, you know, I, if you've listened to the show, I am very much not trying to isolate either end per se. I am trying to try to bridge a gap to encourage people to understand where things fall short in golden age Hollywood. That's the lesson part of this show where we teach a lesson from the past that, doesn't work today and that it 
proves as a stepping stone to or a, or a an ex, or a way to not do those things going forward. Um, with the searchers, that was putting this show to the ultimate test in that respect because, or at least the first of many, because there's obviously more films to discuss. But um, as of this episode being released weeks ago, we talked about a Jack Benny movie with Eddie Anderson that I mentioned up at the top of the episode where that's a film that with its problems is also breaking ground in a way that is unexpected for a film of its ilk of its um, legacy where it's a film that nobody has access to quite frankly um, that for all the mistakes it has it has these moments where you start seeing taboos being broken when it comes to race relations it's not perfect we discussed how it's imperfect but it's there um, and so a film like The Searchers being lauded as one of the all-American classics in a blind statement always feels disingenuous to me. Um, now, now, I think they look at it like that and some of the other Westerns kind of like in a vacuum. And it's, I don't this old mythos, just like how there's that mythos of the righteous, confederate soldier mm-hmm. blah 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 where it's just the same way with myth with the american west where it was it was settled by grit and determination like i said earlier man through this idea of manifest destiny it is the white man's world to conquer and everyone else is just living in it right and I'll tell you from a further on standpoint of this is that there, this is the reason why we're not sparing the the searchers um, from this dissection. But I will say that if the goal of this show is to bridge any gaps that we can, we did technically succeed. Because Adam, we didn't throw this film under the bus for its technical acumen on any stretch of form. We fully acknowledge Ford's ability as a director. That was not even up for debate really in terms of his visual acumen, his ability with staging shots, with utilizing location. But we also held accountable the stories that he chose to tell at this particular moment in his career and in scattered parts throughout his whole career. Um, Like I said, there are some John Ford films that don't have these issues that are rewatchable today, like a grapes of wrath. Um, But that but these are these this is a film that has such a high pedestal on it that much like gone with the wind we're not trying to take the film away you know we're not trying to censor art we're trying to do is provide the context and be like this is this is something that was acceptable at the time for these reasons a b c and d where we can but primarily trying to point out like imagery that you saw 50 years ago as a as a kid that might have been acceptable then was never acceptable to begin with. And in the age that we live in, where we have the information that we have, it's inexcusable to say that you don't acknowledge that there's a problem with this. You can still enjoy the movie if you wish, but I would at least want you to at least acknowledge the issues rather than just brush over them with, um, with a, um, with, uh, beer goggles to a to a degree i guess um, um 
Whereas well, also, rosy, rosy colored, colored glasses. glasses. Rosy, rosy colored, colored glasses, glasses, I guess, is my, is my yeah. yeah. I wouldn't say this movie is also really fucking slow. Good God. Yeah, it it it, it is a slog um, in certain extents. Now, I will say it's not as much as a slog as I remembered it being. It actually moved pretty quick this this these last couple times that I've sat back with it from three years ago and now into the two times that I watched it prepping for the show. Um, and uh, the uh, but it still is a you know it's a drawn out five year odyssey um, that doesn't spare in details but that also you know again like your ability to ingest cinema slow or fast is all determined on your preference um and i i will say that this film does still lag for me even though it picked up a little bit more like i could i I felt myself less bored by it this time around but that was i guess mainly because after ingesting so many different forms of western silent cinema over the past couple of years especially like my my able my ability to receive the information was a little bit more in tuned but again that's that's just me you know me adam i'm a weird guy um but let's talk about the reception of this film at its time because that's an interesting way to go about this um um we have of course my favorite critic of the era bosley crowther and i say favorite in quotes um he called the film a rip snorting western in spite of excessive language in its ads, um, uh, he credits Ford with fr- he credits Ford's familiar core of actors, writers, etc., who help him to give him the gusto to th- to this film. From Frank S. Nugent, whose screenplay from the novel by, by Alan LeMay is a pungent is a pungent thing, right on through the cast and technicians, it is the honest achievement of a well knit team. And he also noted two faults of minor moment um, episode um, where episode is piled upon episode, climax upon climax, corpse upon corpse. The justification for it is certainly conveys the lengthiness of the hunt, but it leaves one a mite exhausted, especially with the speed at which it goes. And the director has permitted too many outdoor scenes to be set, obviously synthetic surroundings of the studio stage. Some of those campfire scenes could have been shot in sporting good window stores. So Bosley Crowther, once again, missing the mark from a mile away, <laughs> like, like literally very much a critic of his era and complaining about the technical acumen in a Ford movie sounds ridiculous today when you, when you say that, if you try to say that out loud, um, uh, variety called it ha- variety called it handsomely mounted and in the tradition of Shane, yet somewhat disappointing due to its length and repetitiveness. The John Ford's directorial stamp is unmistakable. It concentrates on the characters and establishes a definite mood. It's not sufficient, however, to overcome the many uh, many of the weaknesses of the story. Um, I, f- I find it interesting that they brought up Shane because that's a movie again dealing with a uh, Confederate who's gone uh, who's you know given up the cause but that movie is a little bit more easier to ingest um uh from from a lot of standpoints and shane's a story that ends up being curtailed for many purposes not the least of which was logan uh which came out in 2017 and is a wonderful film that you should watch if you like uh x-men movies 
I've seen it. You don't need to tell me about it. I've seen it. Have you Have you seen Patrick Stewart's heartbreaking speech where he talks about how he couldn't save the kids because his mind was going insane, and then he gets killed by Wolverine's clone? It's wonderful. Oh, my God. Logan's great. Um, I mean, he... <laughs> Logan is basically just how Monsanto is poisoning us. That is true. That, that hey. basically, It's basically against big ag. There you go. That there you go. Once again, James Mangold leading leading the way, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> that that it's an, created... it's, a, it's an allegory about how Monsanto is just poisoning us all. Yeah, and you know what, Adam? Furthermore, Mangold is not only doing that, but he's trying to subvert our image of the dad movie by making Ford v Ferrari, which is now the new ultimate dad movie. <laughs> That's dad, the motion picture. Everything a dad wants is in Ford v Ferrari. Um, and I like that movie a lot um, more than I thought, more than I liked it the first time I saw it. I saw it a, a second time before theater shut down and uh, or shut quite, down the first time. And it's quite Jangoist in the same way that The Searchers is quite Jangoist. It, it is. It was another situation, though, where I enjoyed the technical acumen a lot because that sound design is incredible. <laughs> Again, I'm not the best example. <laughs> Can we talk about John Wayne? Yes, we can. Yeah, we will. Really quickly, though, the movie did earn four point eight million dollars in rentals during its first release uh, year in release. Um, uh, He critic Roger Ebert in later assessments found him to be found Ethan to be one of the most compelling characters of Ford and Wayne have ever created. The Searchers was cited as one of the greatest films of all time. Sight and Sound, Cahier du Cinema. uh, ranked among the greatest films of all time by multitudes of filmmakers, not the least of which is Martin Scorsese, who will be capping off this episode, by the way. Um, and uh, it just cemented as one of the great all-time Westerns, has a current approval rating of 98% on Rotten Tomatoes based on 46 modern reviews, or mo- reviews that could be cold. It says, The Searchers is an epic John Wayne Western that introduces dark ambivalence to the genre that remains fashionable to this day. Um, I find that interesting because no, I mean, I would say that's pretty on the, I would say that's on the mark yeah. in terms of it, in, it, it introduces this whole dark side of the Western because for so long, the Western cowboy is this frontiersman, this bastion of hope, almost like a white knight. Yeah. Now the movie does portray Ethan as a f- tragic figure that, really has no redemption whatsoever and the ambivalence angle of it i find fascinating because there is an element if you watch this film as terrible people doing terrible things in the west it does create this dark mood that completely breaks apart the west the western mythos um but again we've talked about how it also upholds different elements of the mythos. So it's like this, it's, it's, it's trying to jumble a lot of balls in the air. And I think it does succeed at what it's trying to do. But like in terms of how we ingest it today is an entirely different discussion, but yes, let's talk about John Wayne um, after this uh, film and more specifically just his legacy going forward. After this point, he ends up winning his Oscar for true grit um, in a year that, it frankly should have gone to anybody else because uh, he's, he's fine and true. He's fine and true grit, but it's not, it's not even close to his best performance. Um, and um, also again, he's not an actor. He's a movie star. It should be going to the best movie star. If you're going to give that role out, out, out properly. Um, but um, yes, this is an undeniable fact. Um, 
He is among the many people who not only supported HUAC, but encouraged blacklisting all across the board. Um, He actually had a lot of frustration with the movie High Noon, which was offered to him. He called the movie un-American and was more than happy to assist in having Carl Foreman, the screenwriter of that film, blacklisted and, and in his words, run out of the country. Um, Um, And what's more, I want you to touch more into this, Adam, but um, Wayne's views on race are to say the very least a problem <laughs> I don't think it's uh, <laughs> I'm just, that's why I said at the very least <laughs> his, I wouldn't call it a problem as to more I would use a different adjective as to call his views on race just fucking stupid um, yes yes he well, first of all, let's uh, let's look at okay. He's a conservative. There's plenty of conservatives in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Um, some crazy like Scott Bayo or John Boyd. Um, yeah. Others, not so much like Arnold Schwarzenegger or Kurt Russell. Um, yeah. And uh, I mean, and Clint Eastwood, even though he has put his foot in his mouth more more than once. He tries to lay into not making that the predominant discussion in his work, but he's been failing the last couple of years. <laughs> True. But to say that John Wayne is a conservative is a little, doesn't go the whole, um, doesn't go all the way. I would say if John Wayne were alive today, he would have his show on. He and Sean Hannity would have a show together. Um, yes. That's, and another thing that really irritates me about John Wayne, because like I said, I had started learning things about John Wayne like as I got older and just been like, wow, he just fucking sucks. Mm-hmm. Um, first, I first learned back in 1973 when Marlon, I believe it was 70, yeah, because it came out in 72, so it would have been the 73 Oscars when Brando won for the Godfather for best actor. And he sent up the, uh, the native American woman. I cannot remember the name from life of me where she accepted the award to. So because he Brando was a activist for native American rights. Um, and you and had her accept it and basically to say Marlon Brando will not be accepting this award because of how Native Americans have been treated in life and in film. The the woman, by the way, is name her name was Sasheen Littlefeather. Okay. Thank you. Mm-hmm. And and so because it was Roger Moore, I believe, who was presenting the Oscar and he goes to give it to her and she like kind of she courteously just kind of waves him off, says, no, thank you. And she and, says, uh, I'm representing Marlon Brando this evening. <coughs> and he's asked me to tell you that he regretfully cannot accept this very generous award. And the reason for this are being, it being are the treatment of American Indians today by the film industry. And that's when the crowd booed. She said, excuse yeah. me. And um Others were clapping to cheer her on, but she um, yeah. was trying to continue, but nobody was really letting her do it. And, yeah. Yeah. But you don't 
I mean, you kind of expect that from the Academy, the same people who wouldn't let Hattie McDaniel in the award show. Well, they they eventually they eventually relented on that, but yeah, they initially were never going to let her do that. Yeah. Um, uh, so anyway, I told you that story to tell you this story because you know who is off backstage. Yeah. I've seen the footage. John Wayne. Yeah, I've and seen the John footage. John Wayne <laughs> was completely fucking pissed, and it's like, really, dude, mm-hmm. you you had a hand in showing the mistreatment of native people in movies. So do you know the quote that he gave? Fuck off. Do you know the quote that he gave Adam? No. The quote, there's footage of this in the Oscar documentary. There's, there's footage of this in the Oscar documentary for TCM, um, which is, um, it's a good doc, even though it's, you know, obviously Oscar propaganda. Um, And he, the footage shows him going, um, being, asked to comment on it and he goes oh no 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 you're not gonna get anything out of me on this this is a night to celebrate the movies and whatnot he he literally just tries to shove it off to the side because and you can tell he's pissed you can tell he's pissed like a little baby who can't accept the fact that um to use a phrase malcolm x would use the chickens have come home to roost yeah yeah and so i first learned that about john wayne then just learning more and more and more in just how like yeah how he was i wouldn't say the leader but was a very staunch supporter of blacklisting quote unquote communists and leftist marxist whatever each shit um in turn and just selling people out um and and also he and Reagan helping with that. And so talking about patriotism while he was here playing pretend war. And I look at him as like just a phony tough guy. and like, well, I'm a tough guy. He's like, no, you play one in a movie. Shut up. Um, I go back to the uh, movie Trumbo. I think there's a great line. I'm sure I doubt this ever happened. Um, well, it's an interpretation. I mean, I'll say Trumbo is gets more right than I expected it to. It's not my favorite yeah. interpretation of that era, but it's it's fine. Well, no, I, yeah, and I just go back to because there's a scene in the movie where Brian Cranston has with uh, who was playing John Wayne, and I can't remember something. John Wayne says something, and uh, Cranston, who's playing Dalton Trumbo, comes back and says. Oh well, I was over there, and many of your peers dodging shrapnel and uh, and dodging bullets. What were you? It was like, oh, that's right, you were off playing pretend war mm-hmm. for whatever studio. And she's like, yeah, fuck you. Yeah. Um, and then I'm sure you're going to be getting to the Playboy interview too. In in a moment, in a moment. Yeah. Um, my second one. My second really big revelation was when with Public Enemy, because there's the line in the third verse. It starts out with Elvis was a hero to most, but he never meant shit to me. You see, straight up racist that sucker was simple and plain. Motherfuck him and John Wayne. Mm -hmm. And it's like, huh, interesting. Why do you say that? Uh, And then. I think, and then there's been multiple, 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 multiple interviews where Chuck D is just like, yeah, fuck John Wayne. He's a racist because he just ABC just lays it all out. 
um, and he brought up the good thing. He's like, I don't think Elvis is a racist. I don't like the idea that they that people just automatically made Elvis the king of rock and roll and basically erased everything that uh, black music has done prior has done slash did prior to Elvis that influenced Elvis. Mm-hmm. Um, that was more his gripe. But then he was just like, yeah, fuck John Wayne. Um, yeah, no, no sympathy for Wayne. <laughs> And then there's the, yes, the infamous 1979 Playboy interview. Or 71, 1971. Sorry, I don't want to correct 71? you. 71? Yeah, 1971, May 1971. Sure. sure, it was in the 70s. And he's talking about white supremacy and how it's important. And it's just like, okay, fuck you, dude. Um, and like... When people, what was it, since COVID, everything's just kind of jumbling together. Was it over the summer where everyone was canceled John Wayne? Um, well, that's been kind of, that's been circling around the internet for years, too. This isn't just with the with the revelations in COVID. In March 2019, the Playboy interviewed resurfaced. Okay, um, yeah. Which, 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 was, which was recalling for the uh orange county airport which i've um been to and it's 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 an airport but anyway it's called the john wayne airport and they were calling for it to be renamed uh and john wayne's son ethan defended him stating it would be an injustice to judge someone based on an interview that is being used out of context um and the call for these uh uh, the name to be changed was revived during the George Floyd protests um, in June of last year. Um, and, okay. sim- and additionally, uh, USC student activists were calling for the removal of an exhibit de- dedicated to the actor citing this interview. In July of 2020, it was announced that the exhibit would be removed. Um, the inter- the interview that we are talking about, <clears throat> I want to read um, uh though the main quote in regards to race and i'm i'm sorry for anybody who might feel um sensitive towards the things that might be said um in terms of just like because it's just harsh and like sometimes it can you know like cause people it, it it affects people adam this this these words affect people and so i'm giving full warning if you are sensitive to these matters might want to turn this section off you may not even want to listen to the episode at this point but um he says with a lot of blacks there is quite a bit of resentment along with their descent and possibly rightfully so but we can't all sudden get down on our knees and turn everything over to the leadership of the blacks. I believe in white supremacy until the blacks are educated to a point of responsibility. I don't feel we did wrong in taking this great country away from the Indians. Our so-called stealing of this country from them was just a matter of survival. They were There were great numbers of people who needed new land, and the Indians were selfishly trying to keep it for themselves. Get the fuck out of my face with that. So this is this is where um, this is where I have to um, state up front for the fact that um, Adam referred to the um, Public Enemy song, which is um, "Fight the Power," which is the prominent featured song in Spike Lee's classic film "Do the Right Thing," and um, that was the first time I ever heard. That song was in a high school class 
um, writing on film class where we sh- where they showed the film do the right thing, Adam. So I've been aware of this longer than um, yeah than most of my peers. Um, you've probably you probably heard me more than once make those comments when we were uh, hanging out together in film school, and I um my my love of Spike Lee burgeoned out of not just his filmmaking style, but primarily his ability to address the past and bring up things that were not really mentioned in the grand scheme of the history of cinema. And this is one of them. Um, When it comes to my reception of Wayne, while I understand people's admiration for him, it is very hard for me to look at a quote like this combined with my general disdain for his ability as a performer, period, and to be like, do I need to watch a John Wayne movie today? If, if I, I go, if I go to any one of them, Adam, it is Stagecoach, and I'll be honest, he's good in the movie, but he's not the reason I'm watching that movie. Um, well, it's the same reason I, I'm watching The Searchers is because this is a. I will state up front: this is a total fucking cop out, and I apologize. Um, that it's you're. I'm watching it more for the technique that John Ford applies. Um, yeah. Um, and what, just how he shoots it. I mean, me, but by saying that, like, well, I only read, I only have Playboy because it's, I read it for the articles. Like, mm. uh, and so, yeah, I think it comes back to holding people accountable and like with John Wayne, he makes no bones about it. He's saying something that, well, we took we took it from the Indians because we had to because we were we were starving. There were more people of us. It's like, no, dude, you literally came. People literally came over on boats, settled the land, and said, "This is ours now. Fuck you. Mm-hmm. Fuck all y'all." Yeah, I mean. Sorry to be so crass about it and very oversimplistic, <laughs> but it's like, it's not just a case of, oh, well, we were here too and we were starving. It's like, no, you weren't. Um, yeah. You came, most people came here for one thing and one thing only to conquer. Yeah. It's not, it was nothing else. Yeah. And um, I apologize too if I sounded like I was copping out when it comes to my ability to go back to stagecoach. Um, uh, it's not intended to be as such. Um, I, tr- I, I don't mean to sound like I make any excuses. I tried my very best on the Jack Benny episode to not do as much um, either. Um, so if anybody's listened to it by this point and they've had issues with it, I do apologize if anybody mistook my reading of the film but also because i was trying to primarily point out where there is progress playing alongside of regression but the searchers is a film that falls into the regression area as does stagecoach in a lot of in, in its own ways but um the, I think uh, it's something that we as a society i.e mainly white people and white hollywood need to come to terms with we cannot mm-hmm. just be like, <laughs> the way that white Hollywood reacts to older movies that have a lot of racial issues and a lot of poor depictions of minorities and things like that. They treat it the same way 
<laughs> that Southerners treat the Civil War and segregation by just being like, oh, it happened a long time ago. Let's not dwell on it. It happened. We've changed. Right. And I and I will say something, too, in the regards to doubling down on the fact that um, uh, there's no excuse for that behavior, especially after World War Two, which is something that John Ford experienced full force as to whether or not John Ford was aware of the results of World War Two and the uh uh, the re- revelations out of Auschwitz and other places about the costs of that type of vitriol um, and hatred, um, I'm not sure of. I do know that he was with George Stevens at Normandy, and after he left, Stevens stayed and shot evidence at those camps of what happens when that kind of hatred and genocide is allowed to run rampant. So you can't tell me that Ford wasn't aware of that because even if they weren't hanging out every day drinking scotch with each other, Ford knew Stevens and also more than likely knew him after the war and knew what he, and knew the films that he had put out. He's not he was not one to like not be unaware. And I want to wrap up Ford here for a minute. I know we'll talk about Ford again in the future and hopefully be able to talk about other elements of his career too, because there are very, very many of them. But uh, he was always very conventionally um, within the stances that he portrays on those films, which again leads to an example of his reception to material, but his attitude towards McCarthyism. I think that Ford is easier to swallow technically than Wayne if we had to play the comparison game, but that doesn't excuse either of them. Uh, Um, But Ford's legacy has been cemented by many filmmakers, always putting them on a, always putting them on a list. The list is wide. Um, uh, Alfred Hitchcock even said a John Ford film was a visual gratification. Um, But uh, uh, the list goes from everywhere from Ingmar Bergman all the way down to Pedro Costa, um, Francois Truffaut, Martin Scorsese, Steven Spielberg, George Lucas, yeah. um, Sergio Leone. Um, th- as terms of how The Searchers has influenced movies today, I mean, it's all over every Western you see. Any Western you see today is influenced by John Ford and The Searchers. I will, I will push back you on that a little bit. I would say um, it's influenced in terms of maybe a visual style, Yes, that's more. That's more what I meant. Yeah, I, I, I was. Yeah, but I would say nowadays because people don't make westerns anymore because they find them to be too expensive and nobody wants to watch a western um, unless it has to deal with a former X Man. Anyway, um, <laughs> but I would say that now I think you're seeing more influence. Westerns, whenever they come out, are more influenced by things of, by like I said, like a Leone or a Peckinpah. Um, and I think that, like, for me, I find that the um, Man With No Name trilogy is better than most of what the Westerns that... I prefer those over 
the actual like John Ford westerns. Like I would prefer a fistful of dollars or the good, the bad, and the ugly over the searchers. Yeah, yeah. I I'm actually tended to agree with you on that. Westerns are the one era of golden age Hollywood that I tend to discuss the or to to explore the least. Um, so again, that might explain why I'm being as harsh as I am because I'm. Uh, a little limited in scope. If, if if there's a Western out there that is a lot more easier to swallow that people would want to recommend to me, I'd be more than willing to accept those um, suggestions. Um, and I'll tell you, Adam, that like, I mean, I don't mind the movie True Grit with um, John Wayne, but to be honest, I prefer the remake by the Coen brothers, which also visually has inspiration within the searchers in that respect, where, the Western grew up and matured in a way through them or through even Clint Eastwood. Unforgiven is a very, very forward thinking, um, Western. Um, but, um, uh, but anyway, regardless of that, the modern Westerns that we see today, whether it is a true grit or an unforgiven or, um, uh, the ballad of Buster Scruggs or, uh, even a neo-Western like No Country for Old Men or Let Him Go um, are all working off of a sense of redirecting the Western motif more to a neo-Western aesthetic. Um, But if you make a traditional Western today, you do see a lot of influence on the visual acumen, courtesy of what Ford set up with his landscapes, his horizons, his ability to stage um, action and direction of actors um, in a sense that John Ford did write a lot of the book on how to make a Western, um, which is a, which is a good legacy to leave behind. You know, it's not, I'm not going to take that away from him. He did, he did write the book on how to do it the way Hitchcock wrote the book on how to make a suspense movie or how Billy Wilder wrote the book on how to make a romantic comedy. Um, so like there's, there's a lot of like there, there's, there, you can never throw these artists or filmmakers, however they choose to identify themselves, um, to the trash bin because they have a legacy. We have a, they, 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 that's a legacy that you don't have to respect or, and you certainly should question its legacy. Um, yeah. But, but I don't think, I, I don't yeah. think you, I don't think you should just throw it out and discard it, but you need to have, we need to start having these honest conversations about what, these films mean and what they are and how they portray people and how, um, and also how it helped fucking shape Hollywood because at the same, at the same point, yes, Hollywood wasn't maybe not explicitly, but implicitly, is that the right word? I don't know. Um, racist. Yeah. Um, in terms of just, all right, well, we can't have any black movies. We can't have anyone. And, and then because what they're seeing on the screen and they're just wanting that white audience and giving you what the white audience wants, and that basically just continues to then set up Hollywood and every, and every studio's slate for the next 50 years. Just being like, oh, yeah, yeah. This, is what, this is what white people want. That's fine. They're okay. Oh, they're okay with it. Great. We'll make it. We'll make, you know, Walt Disney. Oh yeah. We'll make Son of the South. That's fine. Yeah. Yeah. And, And, um, um, 
If you, if you do, do want to hear more about the formation, formation of that, that movie, you should, you should listen, listen to, to Karina, Karina Longworth's um, You Must Remember This series on it. It's a very, very informative series on that very subject. Um, I'm going to bring up two last things in regards to the, the legacy of The Searchers. Um, in 2016, there is a Canadian film made named Searchers, um, uh, directed, um, he says here, by Zacharias Canuck um, and uh, Natir Ungalag, um, who is an Inuit actor. Um, this film was, uh, it sets in nine, it's, it's set in 1913 about an Inuit man finds his wife and daughter have been kidnapped. Um, co-director Zacharias discarded the originals plot about conflicts between white people and indigenous people instead using only Inuit characters. Canuck explained racism was not intended as the theme of his film. And he said that he watched Western films in the Igluic community as a boy um, in the community hall as a boy and declared the searchers John Wayne was our hero. Which is interesting to, to, to see, consider what we've been talking about this entire time is that there is still a fascination with the John Wayne mythos, the Western hero, the Western aesthetic. Um, the other thing that I wanted to bring up to this was I talked about Martin Scorsese earlier as he's listed this as one of his favorite films of all time on the hollywoodreporter.com right now there is a guest reviewer column Martin Scorsese on the searchers and I'm going to read the last portion of it okay. um, because, because, um, because and I'm not going to do the imitation today because we need to hear this in a serious tone I go back to the searchers all the time a few years ago I watched it with my wife and I will admit that it gave me pause Many people have problems with Ford's Irish humor, which is almost always alcohol-related. For some, the frontier comedy scenes with Ken Curtis are tough to take, but again, I don't think they mar the film. These interludes are as much a part of the director's universe as Shakespeare's clowns are a part of his. For me, the problem was with the scenes involving a plump Comanche woman, Beulah Art Arculetta, that the Hunter character inadvertently takes as a wife. There is some low comedy in these scenes. Hunter kicks her down a hill, and Max Steiner's score amplifies the moment with a comic flourish. Then the tone shifts dramatically, and the and Wayne and her both become ruthless and bullying, scaring her away. Later, they find her body in a Comanche camp that is wiped that has been wiped out by American soldiers, and you can feel their sense of loss. All the same, the passage seemed unnecessarily cruel to me. But the last time I saw the searchers, the picture seemed even greater than ever. And it's not the scene that had stopped and it's not the scene that had stopped troubling me. In fact, it troubled me on an even deeper level. In truly great films, the ones that people need to make, the ones that start speaking through them, the ones that keep moving into their territory, um, the, the text comes uh, comes out a little sketchy here, but then, um, unfathomable and uncomfortable. Nothing's ever simple or neatly resolved. You're left with a mystery. In the case, in this case, the mystery of a man who spends ten years of his life searching for someone, realizes his goal, brings her back, and then walks away. Only an artist as great as Ford would dare to make a film, uh, dare to end a film on such a note. In its final moment, the searchers be suddenly becomes a ghost story. Ethan's sense of purpose has been fulfilled, and like the man who saw his eyes, whose eyes got, whose eyes he shot out, he's destined to wander forever between the winds. So I ended it on this note to suggest that we talked earlier about how how did the filmmakers of the new wave, 
wrestle with this. And I think Scorsese wrestles with it constantly anytime he rewatches it because he's not unaware. Um, neither is Bogdanovich. Um, I don't know what the other, I don't know what Spielberg thinks in his mind. I, it seems like he has his issues with it, but, um, this is not to excuse like any like uplift or, you know, pedestal that the film is put on, but I find it comf not comforting. What's the word? Like, I, I, I guess I find it interesting to note that Scorsese and I, have the same issue regarding the uh, scene with Beulah Arculetta because I had not read this um, article up until an hour before recording with you. Yeah. Um, and so that gave me a sense of relief to an extent, I guess, in the sense that like at least he is aware that there are greater issues at hand in the searchers than just beyond the things he loves about it. Um, so on, on and I, yeah. think that's, I think that's fair that, you know, <clears throat> someone like Scorsese has been uh, thinking about it and his views are constantly changing about it. And he's realizing these things. OK, yeah, that's great. And you see a lot of people doing that. Like we said, Roger Ebert did a revised uh, review um, mm -hmm. on it. Yes. And there's a lot of people coming back and saying, mm, well, now that you mention it, this yeah. is pretty bad. And I think there's an issue. I think that's also part of the issue that I have with it is like complicit mm -hmm. in with silence, just being like, it's a good movie, but there are some very glaring issues that we have to talk about. It's like, nope, it's just a good movie. This is what John Ford does great. Like, not addressing it until the public outcry comes in. Yeah. yeah. Now, now, and this, this is... is my... and, I'll, and I'll say that, you know, I've alluded to on this show a certain film called Gone with the Wind. Yeah. And the reason I haven't booked an episode for it yet is because I'm honestly waiting to get a panel of people in there to talk this out. Because, I, uh, one, I, I can't imagine anybody's not going to have the similar notices and observations about the film that I would. Um, I know of people who really enjoy films like Gone with the Wind. Um, and that's a film that I've never not had my frustrations with from the moment I saw it when I was in high school and freshman year. And... I mean, one, Adam, I find the film boring as sin, and I think it's stupid, sappy, melodramatic trash. However, I understand it's... I understand very true it's, on all of those fronts. Yeah. yeah. But I also, at a very early age, understood the racism at hand in that movie. Um, and that's a movie that has a lot of prominent African-American actors who, despite a lot of people trying to downplay it, not all of them had a good time making Gone with the Wind for a multitude of reasons, many of which had to do with abuse on set. Um, and so I'm not going to downplay that when I talk about it eventually, but that will come in my time when I am ready to get people onto a, onto a discussion about this because I don't want it to just be a one-on-one. -on -one. That wouldn't be... I mean, The Searchers was even kind of a stretch, but I think The Searchers is also a film that not many people go back to that much anymore unless you're in film school or if you are a film aficionado. Um, I don't see that really permeating true popular culture today, which I guess is t 
to an, I don't to, think it's it's not as remembered as it didn't win, but it didn't it didn't win all those Oscars and isn't still the highest grossing movie ever made. Um, uh, and but I want to end on not a positive note, but just so much as an ominous note, the way that Scorsese ended his thoughts. Only an artist as great as Ford would dare to end the film on such a note. In its final moments, the searcher suddenly becomes a ghost story. Ethan's sense of purpose has been fulfilled, and like the man of uh, whose eyes he shot out, he is destined to wander forever between the winds. Um, mm-hmm. This movie is a ghost story in a lot of ways. So the, one of the ways you can look at the searchers, given all that we've talked about within a contextual angle, is that this is a film about these ghosts of the past and these outdated values. But again, we are talking about a director who did not have the nuance or want the nuance to address it the way that you could watch a movie like this or tell a story like this. And so that makes the searchers a very raw and hard film to swallow in this current modern era. I do encourage people to watch the film with the context at hand and you don't have to listen to this show for it please by all means do not rely on me for this there are many articles and many dissertations by college educated folks who have dedicated their time and their craft to addressing this issue like adam's a college graduate but there are people a lot smarter than us yes that can speak a lot better Mm -hmm. and more eloquently about this topic yep and in regards to racism in hollywood i want to point out that one thing that has been rectified in a certain respect is a lot of films by minority filmmakers or african-american filmmakers or filmmakers of different races and religions and creeds have been resurfacing and being restored kino lorber has the pioneers of african-american cinema box set which has amongst other films uh the films of some of the films of oscar michaud who is a filmmaker that I will try to discuss on this show as soon as I figure out the proper way to present it because I would want to have uh, a couple different guests I'd have in mind that I would like to try to reach out to and see if it's even possible. But you will also have commentary and dissertations by two noted experts. One of them is Professor Jacqueline Stewart, who's currently um, curating a lot for TCM. Um, She is a very well-educated woman who has broken down a lot of the films on that box set. There are also film. There are also shows like Secret History of Hollywood, who as of now have started releasing a series on women's role in cinema. And one of the first episodes is about Anna Mae Wong, who is one of the first Chinese American uh, superstar actresses, and also the things that she tried to do to innovate and change the industry. Um, sadly, not to any. Um, uh, not, sadly, uh, not to any great um effect in the apart from what we look back on now but um there are people out there getting these messages out this show's only goal is to really address right now the things that we put on that pedestal right now and say like let's stop for a second and look at that pedestal and see if there's any firm ground to uh back that up and with the searchers i think you stood you should still watch it its pedestal is earned but you have to understand the art you're ingesting. If you don't understand the art you're ingesting and watch it blind, you are you are being fed you are being fed a fairy tale that isn't healthy for you. Unlike an Avengers Endgame, which is totally healthy for you, because it's you know it, who doesn't want to watch three hours of Thanos getting his ass kicked? That's 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 fun. 
the searchers is a different yeah you know so uh adam thank you for chatting with me for over four hours on the searchers um really quick yeah go ahead i was gonna say is like remember last time we talked about like second one would be godfather 2 range yeah that's true um thankfully i did not go fishing with al neary at the end so i'm still alive for the trilogy concluder (laughs) this is gonna rock it's this is the our next episode will be what happens if fredo lived um, because I am clearly the Fredo of of this whole universe. A clear um, sliding doors moment. Yeah, but Adam, I want you back, and I want you back for the apartment because we got to talk about something a little bit more upbeat. <laughs> Even though that movie is has this more than one depressing moment. Um, <laughs> uh, but and Billy Wilder, we need to get Billy Wilder back on the show. He's a little bit more upbeat right now than John Ford. <laughs> Let's do it. Yeah. yeah, but uh, that's going to wrap it up for this episode of Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Um, you can find more about Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review uh, at BallyhooReviewPodcast.com. Uh, you can find us on Twitter and on Instagram at BallyhooPod and at BallyhooReviewPod. Um, more importantly, I hope you took the lessons to heart and understand that we're not trying to kill your heroes. We're trying to clarify them for you. Um, and uh, on the next episode... Um, I believe I will be talking with uh, Aaron Pendergast from the Shamley Silhouette fame and also documentary filmmaking fame, uh, who will be on hand to talk about a very odd uh, movie in Universal Studios' history featuring a very, very young Bing Crosby. Um, and it is not a narrative film. It is actually one of the first real concert films, if you can believe it. Um, but that until next time, guys, good night. This concludes tonight's episode of Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter at BallyhooPod and on Instagram at BallyhooReviewPod. That's R-E-V-U-E. Our theme was composed by Maddie Ghost. Be sure to check him out on Twitch for more of his music. Our announcer was Henry Jarvis. Be sure to watch his YouTube series, Chewing the Scenery. This is Zach, signing off. Stay tuned for Jack Benny, who follows immediately after station identification. <laughs>